Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. And hello to all of the new subscribers and the rest of the Beach House 34 family. Thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for listening. First, I want to say if you enjoy this podcast and you find yourself coming back time and time again, please like and subscribe wherever you choose to listen, whether it's on your favorite podcast platform or through YouTube. It really means a lot and it lets me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. You can also show your support through Patreon at patreon.com slash beachhouse34. And there's also a link uh, in my bio at beachhouse34podcast on Instagram. So thank you so much. Let's get on with it. This is part two of the Darley Routier trial. Now, there have been multiple episodes about this case, and I'll have all of the links in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to any of the previous ones. You can also find them on the Beach House 34 podcast at your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube where they actually have their own playlist, and this is probably the easiest way. This episode is the actual reading of the trial, again, part two. In part one, I covered the prosecution and the defense opening statements and the testimony of Dr. Joni McLean, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Devon, who is the oldest child. Now, today we start with the testimony of Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman, who performed the autopsy on Damon, the youngest, and then we'll move on to other witnesses. But first, let's start with a brief recap of what got Darley arrested in the first place. In June of 1996, Darley Routier was asleep on the couch in the downstairs family room of her home. Her two oldest sons, Devin, who was six, and Damon, who was five, were also sleeping downstairs, but they were on the floor with their pillows and blankets. Darley's youngest son, Drake, who was eight months old, was asleep upstairs in his crib in their parent in the parents' bedroom, uh, Darren and Darley's bedroom. Darren, uh, of course, Darley's husband, was sleeping in the same room along with Drake. Now, around 2.22-ish a.m., Darley and the boys were attacked. The boys had been stabbed repeatedly, and Darley had cuts to her arm and a slice to her neck that came within two millimeters of her carotid artery, all seemingly by a knife from inside the home. Darley awoke and saw a man moving away from her. She chased him and he ran out the utility room, the laundry room, and into the garage, which was attached to the utility room, where he then disappeared. Now, in the process of getting away, he dropped a knife in the utility room. Darley picked up this knife and followed the way the man went, only to discover that he was gone. In all of this chaos, she had not yet realized what had happened to her or her boys. And when she discovered this, she screamed for Darren. Now, around 2.30 in the morning, Darley called 911 in a complete panic. Things do get a little chaotic from this point on. She is speaking to 911, but around 2.33, an officer arrives at the home. Now, this officer did not call in to let dispatch know that he was at the scene. Two minutes after that, another officer arrives and the dispatcher is telling Darley to let the police in, but she's confused because one was already there, even though... Darley told this first officer that there was an intruder. She told him the way that he went, the direction that he went, which rooms he went out of. He didn't pursue this intruder. He wanted to wait until a second officer arrived. 
Now, in the meantime, with Darley realizing that her throat had been cut and she was bleeding profusely, she's still on the call with 911. She's begging them to send an ambulance, telling the the dispatcher that her children are dying and she's wondering out loud where in the world the paramedics were. Darley, in speaking to the first officer, tells him that the intruder had dropped the knife and that she had picked it up, concerned she may have gotten her fingerprints on it. Now, dispatch also heard this conversation and told Darley not to touch anything to which she responded that she already had. Now, after it was all said and done, both children ended up passing away and Darley had to be rushed into emergency surgery. A few days later, Darley and Darren went to the police department to give their statements. They went freely. They didn't have any attorneys, nothing. Even after their initial statements, they gave additional statements again, freely with no representation. They had no concern as to why they would be answering these questions for the police. Now, one incident that seemed to send not only the jurors in this case, but the public in general over the edge was a scene where Darley and other family members had gathered at the children's graves for a birthday celebration for Devin, who would have turned seven. It shows Darley at times smiling, chewing gum, and spraying silly string over the card and balloon decorated grave of Devin. Now, overall, it didn't give a good look. However, this footage was only a portion of what happened that day. Prior to this incident, the family had all gathered along with the pastor and they had a prayer service where emotions were really high, people were crying, people were upset. This footage, however, was never included either on television stations or even shown in court. Now, not long after, the police arrested Darley for the murder of her two children. Bond hearings were held months later and some fascinating information came from those hearings. Now, I'm not gonna go over all of that because it's very lengthy, but all of the bond hearing or at least the testimony regarding the hearing to hold Darley without bond were covered in a few episodes prior to this. These prior episodes were only focused on that hearing. Now, Darley's trial began on January 6, 1997, just seven months, seven, after she was arrested. Now, to say this case is interesting and complicated, not to mention very, very divisive, would be a complete understatement. Darley at the beginning had started out with a court appointed attorney uh, by a, an attorney by the name of Douglas Parks, who has extensive experience in capital murder cases. Parks brought in leading forensic experts that showed forensically that the evidence did not po point to Darley's guilt. Now, Parks was told he had six months to prepare for the trial. Doug Parks requested a change in venue believing that Darley couldn't get a fair trial in Dallas County and in July of 1996 filed a motion to have the trial moved. So in September of 1996, so a few months later, Judge Toll, the same judge who had denied Darley's bond um, and even Darley's bond be reduced, I'm sorry, then uh, went ahead and did grant this request for a change of venue. But the change was to one of the most conservative towns in the state, Kerrville. It has been said that if you want to guarantee a conviction, move it to Kerrville. Now, Darley's mother, Darley Key, wanted Darren to locate another attorney rather than use this court-appointed one, and they found one, uh, Douglas Mulder. Now, Mulder didn't actually accept the case until he had first visited with Darley. So by this time, when Mulder took over, he had six to seven weeks 
to prepare for the trial. Now, Mulder did request that the case be returned to Dallas County, but Judge Toll denied the motion. Now, this is the second reading of the trial testimony, as I've mentioned. And I want to give you a really quick overview of the players, um, just to go over some of the names so that you're familiar with them. The prosecuting attorney is Assistant District Attorney Greg Davis. Now, he's been on the case since day one. And next, we have Douglas Mulder, who is the defense attorney, who had limited time to prepare for the case. To top it all off, we're now in Kerrville, Texas, this extremely conservative town. And with all of that, we begin with the second part of the trial, where we begin with the testimony of Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman, who did the autopsy on the youngest child, Damon. So at this point, Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman has been called to the stand and she is now being uh, the direct examination by Mr. Greg Davis, who is the prosecutor. Ma'am, would you please tell us your full name? Janice Townsend Parchman. Are you a medical doctor? Yes, I am. Would you please tell us how you're employed? I'm employed as a medical examiner by Dallas County. How long have you been a medical examiner for Dallas County? I've been working for Dallas County for five and a half years. Ma'am, would you please tell us about your professional and educational background prior to becoming a medical examiner? I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in biology with honors from Princeton University. I have a Master of Arts degree in zoology from Indiana University at Bloomington. I have a Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Texas Health Center, Science Center, San Antonio. I then did a one-year general surgery internship at the teaching hospitals of the University of Texas Health Science Center of San Antonio. I then did the first year of a four-year combined anatomic and clinical pathology residency program, also in the teaching hospitals at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. I then transferred my pathology residency program to Methodist Medical Center of Dallas and completed it. I am licensed to practice in medicine in the state of Texas. I am certified by the American Board of Pathology in anatomic, clinical, and forensic pathology. I've done over 1,800 forensic autopsies. All right. The court then says, you may want to speak into that microphone, doctor. Okay. The witness then says, okay, is it on? Court says, it's on. Mr. Greg Davis then says, Doctor, did you perform an autopsy on an individual identified to you as Damon Routier? Yes, I did. And was that assigned the case number of 1810-96? Yes, it was. As part of your autopsies, do you prepare a written autopsy report of your findings? Yes. Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor, then says, Your Honor, may I please approach? And the court then says, You may. Uh, whereupon the following item was marked for identification as States Exhibit B3, 3A, and 3B, after which time the proceedings were resumed on the record in open court as follows. And Mr. Greg Davis then resumes his questioning. And Dr. Townsend Parchman, if you would, please look at States Exhibit number three and tell me whether or not that is a true and correct copy of the autopsy report prepared in this case involving Damon Routier. Yes, it is. Okay. Doctor, at the time of the autopsy, was a record photograph taken of the victim? Yes. If you would, please look at what's been marked as State's Exhibit B, and I'll ask whether or not 
That photograph bears also the case number of 1810-96, the same number that appears on the autopsy report concerning Damon Routier. Yes, it does. All right. Your Honor, at this time, we will offer State's Exhibit Number 3. We would offer State's Exhibit B for record purposes only. Mr. Douglas Mulder, the defense attorney, says no objection. The court then says State's Exhibit 3 is admitted for all purposes. 3-B is admitted for record purposes only, not to be shown to the jury. Then Mr. Greg Davis continues his questioning. Doctor, do you have another copy of your autopsy report with you? Yes, I have the original. Okay, doctor, if you would, would you briefly tell us the procedures that you used to perform this autopsy on this child? Well, the standard procedure at our office for a homicide, since this is a homicide, the first thing that happens, the medical examiner reads the background information that's been compiled by one of our investigative agents. And then the autopsy actually begins. The first thing that happens is what we call an, quote, as is, unquote, photograph that's taken of the individual simply as they're received by our office. And after that, evidence is collected, whatever the appropriate evidence is for that case. The body is disrobed and a brief inventory of any clothing or jewelry on or with the body is made at that time. Standard characteristics are noted about the body during the external examination, including length, weight, hair color, eye color, and so on and so forth, including any scars or identifying marks, and including any evidence of treatment at the hospital. Photographs are taken of the body, particularly noting any injuries, and of course, during our examination, the injuries are noted and described. And then, when all of that is taken care of, the actual internal examination is made, with the characteristic incisions being made in the body. The body organs are examined while they're still in the body cavities, looking for evidence of natural disease and looking for evidence of injury. And examples of and samples of body fluids are taken at that time to be sent to our toxicology lab for analysis. Then the body organs are removed from the body cavities and they are again examined, both while intact and after incisions were made in them, looking for evidence of natural disease and evidence of any injury. A portion of each body organ is put into a preservative solution in case microscopic slides need to be made. Can you tell us how tall Damon Routier was? Well, we do length, not weight, rather not height. And when we measured him, we got 43 inches in length. Okay, how much did he weigh? 40 pounds. Were there any clothes accompanying the body to the morgue? Accompanying the body, there was a cut away blood-stained black printed t-shirt with defect. No jewelry was present. Okay, now when you talk about a t-shirt having a defect, what do you mean? Simply that there were one or more defects or holes in it. Do you recall whether the defects were on the front or the back of the t-shirt? I don't really recall in any detail to tell you the truth. So that's the only clothing that came with him, correct? Correct. And there was no clothing on his body. Okay. During the course of the autopsy, did you note any injuries to Damon Routier? Yes, indeed. Would you tell us what those injuries were? There were four stab wounds and there were two incised wounds. Incised wounds, like stab wounds, are sharp force injuries. Injuries caused by a sharp-edged object. Incised wounds are commonly called cuts. 
they are longer on the surface of the body than they are deep into the body. And stab wounds are just the opposite. They are longer within the body than they are along the surface of the body. Okay, may I approach your honor? You may. A doctor, if you would, look at the photographs that have been marked as States Exhibit 3-A and 3-B. I'll ask you whether these two photographs truly and accurately depict the injuries that you noted during the autopsy of Damon Routier. Yes, they do. Do you believe that they would assist the jury and would assist you during your testimony in describing these injuries? Yes, I do. Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer States Exhibit 3-A and 3-B. Mr. Douglas Mulder then says we have no objection. The court then says States Exhibit 3-A and 3-B are admitted. Doctor, can you still see the board? Yes, I can. Doctor, again, if we look at the injury that's marked with a black one first, can you tell us what type of injury this one is? That's one of the incised wounds or cuts. Okay, this is going to be more of a cut than a stab, correct? It's not a stab. It's a cut. Can you tell us about how deep injury number one was? Into the body? Yes. One eighth inch going into the muscle. If we look at the wound that's marked with a black two, what type of injury is that? That's another incised wound or cut. How deep was this wound number two? It also goes into the muscle and the depth was three quarter inch. Now, if we turn to the four injuries that are marked with the white numbers, those are the stab wounds. Yes, they are. Looking first at stab wound number one, can you tell us how deep was stab wound number one? One and three quarter inches. All right, and what organs were penetrated with stab wound number one? It perforated, which means made a hole in the left eighth rib, as well as the left seventh intercostal muscle which is the muscle between the left seventh and eighth ribs, and it went into the left lung. Did this actually penetrate a rib then? Yes, it did. It went through a rib. Could you compare this child's ribs with an adult's ribs? Consistency, just are they the same? Are they different? How would you compare those? They are different. They are narrower and they are thinner and they are softer. Okay. Would it take more force, less force, or just as much force to penetrate this child's rib as it would to penetrate one of my ribs or another adult's ribs? Less force. Stab wound number two here. Can you describe that for us? That one goes through the right eighth rib and also the right seventh intercostal muscle and goes into the right lung to a depth of four and three quarter inches. Okay, how deep again? Four and, I'm sorry, four and three eighth inches. Okay, stab wound number three. Can you describe that one for us? That one goes through the right eighth intercostal musculature. That's the muscle between the right eighth and ninth ribs. And it goes into the right lung with a maximum depth of penetration of one and seven eighth, eighth inches. Okay, finally, stab wound number four. Would you describe that one for us? That goes through the right 11th intercostal musculature. It goes through the right lung, the diaphragm, and into the liver with a maximum depth of penetration of three inches. Now, on those wounds, were you able to determine whether or not these four stab wounds marked with a white one, two, three, and four, whether or not they were consistent with having been made by a single edged knife? 
Yes. Okay. Were they? Yes. Each of those, as well as the incised wounds, had one we call angle, more pointed portions of the wounds. And each one of those had a blunt angle and a squared off angle. And each one had a sharp angle, and that's consistent with a single-edged instrument. Okay. Did you note that same pattern on each one of the injuries? All six. Okay. These injuries, would it be fair to say that they appear to be rather wide on this photograph? Yes. Okay. Can you describe how the skin may act after a stabbing to produce this sort of appearance at autopsy? Your skin has in it what doctors call lines of languor, which are lines of tension. And they really, it's a matter of elastic or the elasticity of the skin. And unless the stab wound is absolutely parallel with the lines of languor, it's going to spread. It's just the nature of skin. If it's absolutely parallel with these lines of languor, along which the tension flows, then it won't spread because it's right there and the tension is going along with it. But if it's the least bit of like or crosswise, it's going to spread. Okay, in this case, did these wounds spread after the wounds were actually inflicted? Yes, on all of them. You talked about these being consistent with a single-edged knife. If I may, let me show you States Exhibit number 67. Have you had an opportunity to look at this knife? Yes, I have. Okay, in fact, did you look at it yesterday? Yes, I did. Is this, in fact, a single-edged knife? Yes, it is. If we look at stab wounds 1, 2, 3, and 4, starting with stab wounds, well, the first incised wound, is there anything about stab wound number one that would eliminate States Exhibit number 67 as the instrument as that actually produced that wound? Is there anything that could exclude that? No. Is this wound number one, the incised wound, is it consistent with having been made with States Exhibit number 67? Yes. The incised wound number two, is that consistent with having been produced with States Exhibit number 67 again? Yes. Is there anything about this wound that would exclude it from having been made with States Exhibit number 67? No. The same question for States Exhibit Exhibits 2, 3, and 4. Are they consistent with having been made with a single-edged knife such as States Exhibit 67? Yes, they are. They are consistent? Yes, they are. Is there anything about these wounds, 2, 3, and 4, that would exclude States Exhibit number 67 as the weapon that produced those wounds. No, there isn't. Doctor, looking at these wounds at one, two, three, and four, do you have an opinion as to whether or not when they would have been produced with a stabbing motion, would blood have gushed out or spurted out of stab wounds one, two, three, and four? Gushed or spurted? No. Okay, do you believe that that would have occurred? Gushed or spurted? Yes. No. Okay, what type of bleeding would you expect to see from stab wounds 1, 2, 3, and 4? Ooze. Oozing? To a greater or lesser extent, it's actually impossible to predict how rapid an ooze. Okay, why would you expect this to produce an oozing as opposed to a gushing or spurting? Because they all go into long or in the case of number 4, and when I say all, I'm talking about the stab wounds. wounds. The incised wounds just go to the muscle although muscle oozes too, but one, two, three, and four, all the stab wounds all go into the lung. None of them cut a major vessel. They cut actual lung tissue. And what lung tissue does is ooze. 
That's also what the liver does. And it's also what muscle does. Doctor, let me ask you, during the course of this autopsy, did you take hair samples from Damon Routier? Yes. Did you also take blood samples? Yes. Can you tell us what you did with the hair and blood samples taken? Did you keep them for your own analysis or did you send them to, out to someone else there at Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences, for instance? What we routinely do is take all of the evidence we collect during autopsy up to the third floor, which is where the Criminal Investigation Laboratory for Dallas County is. And we take the evidence to the evidence registrar and give it to that person who enters it into the computer and then gives it to the appropriate people in the Criminal Investigation Laboratory for the actual analysis. So are there other people out there who do hair examinations or do blood work, DNA, other folks? Yes, yes. There are several subdivisions of the Criminal Investigation Laboratory, including people who do all of those things. Okay, were footprints taken of Damon Routier? As I recall, yes. Let me check. Yes. Okay, can you tell from your report whether or not fingerprints and palm prints were taken from Damon Routier? They were not. Okay, can you tell us why that was not done in this case? Routinely on small children in this age group, we take fingerprints. We are largely taking footprints in this age group for possible identification purposes. And children this age have had, of course, the footprints taken at the hospital when they are born, but seldom have they had their fingerprints taken. Okay, doctor, in addition to the photographs that were taken, have you had a chance to view the videotape depicting the injuries sustained by Damon Routier? Yes. And does that videotape truly and accurately depict the injuries sustained by that child? Yes. Do you believe that it would assist the jury in understanding the nature of the wounds? Yes, I do. May I approach your honor? The court then says you may. Mr. Davis then says, okay, doctor, let me show you what's been marked as state's exhibit number five. Is that in fact the videotape that you've had a chance to view that shows the injuries sustained by Damon Routier? I believe so. Okay. Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer State's Exhibit number five. The court then asks, any objection? Mr. Mulder says, no objection. The court then says, State's Exhibit number five is admitted. Your Honor, may I publish it at this time? You may. And then Mr. Greg Davis again continues, Doctor, this video does not have any sound attached to it, does it? I don't recall such. Okay, if you would, as we view each injury, if you'll narrate for the jury what we're looking at, please. All right, I'll try. Okay, are we now looking at stab wound number one? Yes, it's gone through the eighth rib. And you can see that it goes into the left lung to a depth of one and three quarter inches. And stab wound number two goes through the right eighth rib all the way through the right lung and actually penetrated the anterior chest wall, not all the way through. Is this area here the anterior chest wall? Yes, the anterior chest wall, the inside. Okay. Stab wound number three goes through the right eighth intercostal space, the muscle between the right eighth and ninth ribs, and goes into the right lung, as you can see there. Okay. And stab wound number four is in the right 11th intercostal mus musculature between the right 11th and 12th ribs, and it goes through the right lung diaphragm and into the right lobe of the liver. Okay. Thank you, doctor. A doctor, let me just ask you, what is your opinion concerning the cause of death of Damon Routier? Sharp force injuries to the back. Okay, 
The cause of death, would that be consistent with this child having been stabbed with a knife? Yes. Okay, a single-edged knife? Yes. Let me also ask you, doctor, whether or not on June 6, 1996, you received a call from the Raleigh Police Department. Not me personally. Someone out there at the medical examiner's office? Yes. Okay. As a result of that phone call, did you go to Baylor Hospital in Dallas? Yes, I did. And while at Baylor Hospital, did you have an opportunity to see the defendant, in this case, Darlie Lynn Routier? Yes, I did. Do you see her here in the courtroom this afternoon? Yes, I do. Would you please point her out for members of the jury? She's the lady over there in the red dress with the white collar. Your Honor, may the record please reflect that this witness is identifying the defendant in open court. Yes, sir. Doctor, at the time you saw Darlie, where was she? She was in a hospital bed. Okay. And was anyone in the room when you were there with her? There were many people in the room, but you have to understand this was a large four-bed room, four or six-bed room. And although there were many people in the room, when I was actually looking at her injuries, there was no one in the immediate vicinity. Do you remember about what time it was on June the 6th that you saw her? It was late afternoon. Late afternoon, I think. Okay. Did you have an opportunity to observe the wounds that she had at that time? The wounds on her neck and right shoulder, the dressings were removed so that I could better look at them, but they were still completely covered by strips. The wounds in her right forearm, one of them was suture closed, the other one was open and there was no dressing on those. So she had a wound to her left shoulder, is that right? Anterior left shoulder, yes. One to her neck area? Yes. And then another wound to her right arm, is that correct? Two in the right forearm, one a little bit bigger than the other one. And you had an opportunity to see them, is that correct? Yes. And as I understand, the wounds to the neck and to the anterior portion of the left shoulder, they were still covered with strips. is that right? Yes. What is Steri-Strips? Steri-Strips are long, thin, adhesive pieces of a somewhat translucent, partially see-throughable, but not really very see-throughable tape, which surgeons and other doctors will put across. Say your incision is this way, they'll be put across it in order to hold the skin edges in very good close approximation. And by and large, that means it heals better and gives you a nicer scar. That's the way they do it. Your Honor, we're going to ask that the defendant be asked to stand up and remove the scarf so that Dr. Townsend Parchman can look at the injuries there on the neck to determine whether... So she can describe those injuries as they appeared on June 6, 1996. Mr. Mulder, the defense attorney, then says, Excuse me, I don't think I'm going to have any objection to this. But I thought the doctor said that it was bandaged at the time and she couldn't see it. The witness says it was not bandaged. The gauze bandage, when it came in originally, there were gauze bandages over both of these, not on the arm. They removed the gauze bandages, but the actual injuries were completely covered with strips. The court then says, all right, if you will stand, please remove your scarf or whatever you may want to step up here. Do you want to step down, doctor? Mr. Greg Davis then says, yes, if you could step down here, doctor. The court then says, she can just remain there if she wishes. That's far enough. Mr. Davis then says, doctor, if you could, if you could go over there to the defendant and just point to the areas of the injuries and describe what you see today 
and what you saw on June 6, 1996, please. Well, what I see today is a scar from here to here, witnesses pointing on the defendant, on the portion of the neck and the base of the neck that I can see, which is angled from her right superior to her left inferior. And it's a scar that looks about six months old. And it's in the same location as where I saw all the strips going across her neck back in June. Okay, how about the injury to the anterior portion of the shoulder? Can you just, we can't see that one right now, can we? Okay, there's a scar right here, which is what, about an inch long? And again, that's in the same location that I saw strips across her anterior left shoulder back in June. Okay, how about the injury to her right arm? Okay, there's a scar here with stitch marks, which is appropriate for what I saw back in June that has healed. And there is also a little scar corresponding to the other defect that I saw back in June. Okay, so do we have a longer scar? We have a longer scar here with stitch marks and we've got a shorter scar more on the dorsum of the forearm. Okay, thank you, doctor. You can take your seat. All right, you have indicated that you saw the injury to the neck, to the shoulder, and the two injuries to the right arm. Did you note any other injuries while you were examining Miss Routier? Back in June? Yes. No. Did she complain of other injuries that she wanted you to look at while you were with her on June the 6th, 1996? No. Okay. Any other injuries to her hands, to her legs, to her trunk, her face? Any other injury whatsoever? No. Okay. May I approach your honor? You may indeed. Judge, may we all approach? This is Mr. Mulder, the defense attorney. And then the court says yes. Mr. Mulder then says, we're going to object to displaying anything before the jury until it's been properly identified and authenticated and the chain of evidence has been proven and it's been admitted into evidence. I tell you, he can do all that. We have no objection to it, but we want to see him do it first. That's the only proper thing to do. He knows the rules. The court then says, well, I think that's what he's getting ready to do. Mr. Mulder then says, he's not going to put it in through her. The court then says, well, if he is, let's see if he's if it's going to be offered. Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor says, well, judge, I am not going to bring it through this witness at this time. Mr. Mulder then says, well, then we object until the evidence is admitted into evidence. The court then says, I understand. Anything, Mr. Davis? No, sir. If that's the, I'll certainly, I'll hold this back and I will bring the witness back from Dallas if necessary and we'll do it at that time, your honor. All right. Mr. Greg Davis then says, all right, let me just ask you, doctor, did you see any injuries to Miss Routier that morning or that afternoon of June the 6th of 1996 that would have corresponded to three defects in a t-shirt that she was wearing during the attack on June 6th, 1996? Any injuries to this portion of her shoulder up here? No. Any stab wounds up here? No. Any scratches up in this area of her body? I didn't see anything on her right shoulder. Did she complain to you of any injuries to this portion of her body then? No. Okay. Now with regards to the injuries to her neck and to her shoulder, how would you describe the severity of those wounds that you saw? They are relatively superficial. And by that, what do you mean? Well, they didn't go very deep into her body and they didn't strike any vital structure. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not the injuries to Miss Routier's right arm, her left shoulder, and her neck could have been self-inflicted? Mr. John Hagler then stands up and he is part of the defense team and says, excuse me, your honor, I don't think this witness has been qualified as an expert in the area 
to know whether that is self-inflicted. We don't question her qualifications as a medical examiner, but not this line of questioning. The court then says, overruled, go ahead and answer if you know it. Mr. Glover then again says, judge, you might know that some of these wounds were concealed and covered. The doctor didn't even see them at that time. To make a determination like that was something concealed. The court then says, thank you very much, overruled, go ahead. The witness then says, it is possible they were. Mr. Greg Davis then asks, okay, is it possible that someone else did it? Yes, it's possible someone else did it, but it's possible from their location that she could have done it also. Mr. Mulder then says, object to the leading. The witness then says, yes, it's possible. The court then says, overruled, go ahead. The witness again says, it's possible. Mr. Greg Davis says, how long were you with Ms. Routier that afternoon? Oh, possibly 10 minutes. Did you have any lengthy conversations with her? No. If we may, if we could go back to the injuries sustained by Damon Routier. The court then says, can all the members of the jury see that if you can't speak up? Mr. Davis then asks, do you have an opinion whether or not these wounds would have caused this child to die instantly? Yes, I have an opinion and no, he would not have. Okay, do you have any, can you give us an estimate? of the amount of time that you believe this child could have survived with these four stab wounds to the back. Minutes. Okay, doctor, I would like for you to assume for a moment that this child had received all four of these stab wounds at one time, okay? Do you have an opinion whether or not this child could have remained mobile and could have moved on his own, say 10 to 15 feet? Yes. Okay, what is your opinion? He could have. I would like for you to also, also to assume that the child, again, has received all four of these stab wounds at one time. Do you have an opinion whether or not this child would have had the ability to make a noise, to be audible, after receiving all four of these stab wounds? Yes, he could have. And can you tell us why you believe that this child could have remained mobile and why he could have actually made a noise after receiving all four of these stab wounds? Well, again, we have to go back to the nature of the injuries. These stab wounds are penetrating the lung, and in the case of stab wound number four, the lung and liver. Now, what lung and liver do is ooze. It's rapid ooze, but they ooze. They don't spurt or whatever your verbs were. And that means that until you or whoever the victim is loses enough blood volume that they lose consciousness, until that time, they are able to move around and make noise. Now, in this case, since we are dealing with the lungs and you have to think about the business, about the idea of the lungs collapsing, you have to realize that lungs are not like a balloon. It's not a matter of either it's inflated or it's popped. It's not like that. Once a lung is punctured, it's slowly, however slowly, sometimes relatively rapidly, but nonetheless, over a period of some time, deflates. Both as blood comes out of the lung and sometimes you will also have air coming into the chest cavity from through the wound passageway itself. But until that gets to the point that that lung is no longer inflating and deflating somewhat with breath efforts, then the person is able to cause sound or make a noise. Doctor, finally, if you would look at state's exhibit number 31-B, do you see depicted on this board certain injuries pertaining to Damon Routier, stab wounds one, two, three, and four? Yes. Do these truly and accurately depict the injuries sustained by Damon Routier? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that they would be of assistance to the jury in understanding the nature of these wounds also? I think so. I personally find it easier to follow this than to follow the videotape. 
Okay. I'll pass the witness, Your Honor. The court then says, Mr. Mulder. Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir. And then we begin the cross-examination. Dr. Townsend Parchment, can you give us your best estimate as to how long this child would have survived after he had received the last series of six wounds? Minutes. Well, I know you said a matter of minutes, but it's minutes. But I mean, my very best estimate, and it's an estimate, would be that if we're still assuming that all four stab wounds were inflicted at the same time, okay, that, or at approximately the same time, yes, approximately the same time, that from that moment until the time he collapsed because of blood loss and difficulty breathing would be a few minutes, less than five minutes, would that be fair to say? Likely, likely, all right. And that, from the time he collapsed until he actually expired, would probably be another few minutes. Okay, so from the time he received all of these injuries, he could have lasted as little as two or three minutes or as much as maybe five or six minutes, something like that. Yes, okay. Even conceivably, a little bit longer. Maybe as much as eight or nine minutes? You can't tell. All right. Now, there isn't any way that you know of that you can determine the order in which these injuries were received, is there? No, no. In fact, let me add that when we number these injuries, we're numbering them for ease of identification and ease in talking about them. It's a lot easier to say stab wound number three than for every time, for instance, have to say the middle stab wound on the right side of the back. So we numbered them for ease of description in court and ease in talking about them, but it is in no way meant to indicate which order they actually happened. Okay, they are generally numbered from the top of the head down, or top of the head, don't you, down, as a rule. For instance, on this time, I simply, it's the back of the body, and you know, our society with English, you tend to go top to bottom and left to right. So I started on the left side of the body and went top to bottom and then go to the right side of the body and went top to bottom. Okay, so it's arbitrary. Now, could you tell from your examination based on the 1800 autopsies that you say you have done? Yes, forensic. Could you tell whether the instrument, and I noticed you didn't call it a knife, when you told the jury what the cause of death was, you just simply called it a sharp instrument? Yes because it may or may not be a knife. Correct. Okay, were you able to tell whether or not this sharp instrument had a serrated blade or not? No, you could not? No. Okay, could you tell the maximum width of the instrument? No. Could you tell the maximum length of the blade of the instrument? No. Okay, so when you say it's consistent with this one, just all you're telling the jury is that you can't rule this out. Correct. Okay. And it could be consistent with any number of pocket knives or buck knives that we may have. Or other kitchen knives. Yes, thank you. Now, for example, doctor, if we take, well, let's just start off with the stab wound number one. And it says that you found a defect in the back of one and five eighths inches. That's going to be this one right here, right? Yes, and when I say one and five eighths inches, I mean that's the length on the surface of the body. Okay, not to be confused with the depth of penetration within the body tissues, which on stab wound number one is one and three quarter inches. Okay, and if we, we know then that if this instrument actually made this cut, it couldn't have gone in more than how far? 
one and three quarter inches, and it's a stab wound. It's not a cut. Well, I understand what you mean when you talk about a stab and how you differentiate the incised wound. It's longer generally than it is deep, and the stab wound is simply deeper than it is. That's right. That's generally accepted, is it not? Yes. And by cut, I simply meant that the body was penetrated. And I'm just trying to keep it straight in everybody's mind. I understand, because it can get tricky and confusing. Well, we don't want to be tricky, but we can agree, can we not, that, for example, stab wound number one, if this knife was used, it couldn't have gone in any more than one and three quarters inches. Well, I'm not saying I don't think whatever instrument was used went in any further than one and three quarter inches. It could have gone in a little less than that. I noticed that you have it at maximum. Yes, that's what we call it. And we call it that because as you are perfectly well aware, since all of us live in a human body, bodies are, depending upon the portion of the body to a greater or lesser degree, compressible. And even the thorax and even the rib cage is somewhat compressible, particularly on a child where the bones are softer. So what I'm measuring is the maximum depth and I cannot rule out at this time of the actual injury, the body wasn't somewhat compressed with that. So the instrument didn't have to go that far back in, far in. But then once the instrument was out of the body and the compression was released, the track expands a little bit, if you see what I'm getting at. So that's why we phrase it this way. Can we agree that if this knife made this stab wound, that the knife, let me back up here a minute. We could take a knife, a pocket knife, and stab me, for example, and shove it in. And a two-inch blade could make a... It could penetrate me to a depth of as much as four inches, couldn't it? Probably only in the abdomen could you get four inches. In the thorax, you probably couldn't get more than two or two and a half to three inches. I'm just pointing out the portion of the body that makes a real difference in terms of compressibility. Okay. But yes, that's... Well, we can agree on that, right? Yes, that's what I was going to explain to the jury. All right, but so if I'm, and I'm kind of doing this as I'm standing up and thinking as I'm going along, but you're saying that this knife could have, I could have held it like this, for example, in a test and shoved it in and gotten it to, gotten it an inch and three quarters, right? Because of the, because that may have given some, I may have been able to push down on it and compress it and push it in. Well, again, the factor of almost two, you're probably pushing your luck, but the general idea that the portion of the blade actually used could be less than the wound track left because of the compressibility of the body is accurate. Okay. Are you saying that oftentimes in stab wounds, the individual moves or the individual doing the stabbing moves and that can enlarge the stab wound itself? Well, you can have two things happen. Instead of, let me start out with what perhaps is it certainly is the simplest idea of, of stab wounds. The simplest idea I think of a stab wound is the idea that the knife blade goes into the body, there's no compression, there's no cutting of force by the blade during the stab. Rather, the blade just goes in and comes back out. That's the most simple case. Now, what we've been talking about is the idea that the blade goes in while the body is compressed so that when the blade comes back out and the pressure is released, the track in the body actually is longer than the amount of the blade that was in the body at the time the wound was inflicted. I think Mr. Mulder is also getting at the idea that while the blade is in the body, it's possible for the sharp cutting edge to cut through the body. 
so that you got essentially a cutting on the surface of the body and of course into the body motion as well as the stabbing motion. And yes, both of those things are possible. Okay, so we can agree, can we not, Doctor, that these injuries could have been inflicted with quite a bit smaller instrument than the knife that you were shown? I guess I want to say last week, but it was yesterday? Yes. Okay, and it's impossible, Doctor, is it not, to testify that all of these stab wounds and incised wounds were made with the same instrument? There's no way to know that. You can't tell, can you? No. And there's no way for you to look at this and tell how many people participated or how many assailants may have been present at the time these injuries were afflicted? Oh, my no. Now, doctor, did you x-ray this youngster? We did a chest x-ray. Okay, was he x-rayed and examined to see if there was any evidence of past child abuse? We did a chest x-ray because we were looking for the question of whether there was air embolism. But I think what you're getting at perhaps is the idea of did we do a do total body x-rays, including the long bone survey? And I can't tell you for sure, but I have no memory of that. You don't know why one would be x-rayed and the other one not? If the other youngster was x-rayed, in all probability, this one was too? It's quite likely. Okay, and it's fair to say that you found no evidence of child abuse when you examined this young man. No, I did not. Okay, in fact, found him to be in good health. Did you not? Yes. Good hygiene? Yes. Teeth? Yes. Just appeared a well-nourished, well-taken-care-of youngster, didn't he? Well, except for those six sharp force injuries, he seemed to be a perfectly healthy, normal little boy. Yes, and you can agree with me then that you found no evidence of past child abuse. I did not. You know, sometimes y'all will x-ray the children where you suspect child abuse and you'll find broken bones that have healed, won't you? Yes. Now, when you went up to see Miss Routier in the hospital, you were there at the suggestion of the Rowlett Police Department. Is that right? Indirectly, yes. Okay, had they made a request of the medical examiner's office? Yes, that's what I was told. All right, and did they accompany you when you went up to see Miss Routier? There was an officer either in or outside the room, but there was not one at the bedside while I looked at her injuries, no. Okay, did you, you weren't there to take any complaints that she might have had, were you? No. Okay, and you weren't there to treat her or to check on her treatment, were you? I did talk with one of the surgery residents about what they found during their exploratory surgery, but I was certainly not there to treat her. I was there to inquire into her injuries. And of course, in all fairness to her, you identified yourself and told her why you were there, didn't you? I introduced myself, told her who I was, where I was from. Well, she knew then and told her that I would like to look at her injuries. And is it fair to say that she knew from your introduction, you knew then from your introduction to her, that if she had complaints, of course, she wasn't going to direct her complaints to you. She understood that, I assume, didn't she? I don't know what she understood. I mean, you would have thought it inappropriate if she started directing, I mean, you cut bodies up after they're dead. You don't, as a general rule, treat live people, do you? Not anymore. Okay, now at any rate, did you talk to one of the attending physicians? I talked with one of the physicians on the case. I don't remember his name. Okay, but I assume you made some notes. No, I didn't make any notes. Didn't make any notes. No. So you're just sharing with us what you are retrieving from the halls of your memory? Yes. Okay, is there a particular, Mr. Greg Davis at this time stands up and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Mulder, could we have this examination done at the council table unless there are some exhibits being used? 
Mr. Mulder then says, well, judge, it's so difficult to get in and out of there. If I could just stand to the side, the court then says, that will be fine. Just stand there. Mr. Mulder then says, yes. Is there a reason that you didn't take notes? Well, why would I take notes? It's not pertinent to the autopsy. I was there at the request of the police through the people in our office. And the question I had been asked to answer was, is it possible the injuries were self-inflicted? I went in, I examined her without touching her. I talked with this one surgeon and my opinion at that time is still the same opinion. Could be maybe yes, maybe no, was that it was possible. And that's what I told the Rowlett policeman who was there. Well, I mean, that's tantamount, almost tantamount to no opinion. I mean, you're saying maybe yes and maybe no. Is that about the size of it? That is what I can conclude from the information I have available. Did you take any photographs of her? I did not. Were photographs taken while you were present? Yes. Have you had a chance to review those? Not recently. And again, did you introduce yourself to the doctor that you visited with? I don't recall. Okay, but you didn't get his name? No, I don't recall. Was it a male doctor? It was a male doctor. Okay. Did you ask him about the injuries that she had received to her right forearm? I just asked about her injuries. Okay. And did he tell you that she had the two... What do you characteristically call those injuries to the area of the arm? Well, if they were on the on this young man and he had the injuries that you've described and observed from Miss Routier, would you not characterize those in your autopsy protocol as defensive wounds? They could be construed as such. Could be construed as defensive wounds, couldn't they? They could be. Yes, mm-hmm. And did the physician who was there, the Jew, whose name you can't recall, did he tell you that the one wound was, did more than just penetrate the skin? He said the larger wound on her right forearm went to the bone. Went to the bone? Yes. That's as far as it could go, I guess, isn't it? Well, if you examine that portion of your right forearm, you're virtually over bone. Well, didn't you... I'm just saying you don't have to go very far in terms of portions of an inch. Yes, to get to the bone. I understand. But he told you it went in an inch to the bone. Did he not? I don't recall that. You don't recall that? No. Okay. All right. Would you tell the jury what a defensive wound is, please? It's not uncommon in a case where the victim has sustained sharp force injuries and where the victim has put up a resistance during a struggle for the victim to sustain sharp force injuries on the hands and the forearms. And those, I believe, is what Mr. Mulder is referring to as defensive wounds. Okay, have you had a chance to review a statement that you had made on another occasion? Have you had a chance to review your testimony? You mean during the bond denial hearing? Yes. Yes, you have. Yes. Okay, let me ask you. If you were asked about the how deep the wound on the right forearm was and you answered, quote, the surgeon I talked to said that it went through and hit the bone. But if you look at that portion of your forearm, you realize that the bone is less than an inch away. Unquote. Did you respond in that fashion? That sounds right. Okay, so it's approximately an inch that penetrated to get to the bone, isn't it? Well, less than an inch. All right, but it's again, it's on the high side, is it not? It's closer to an inch than it is to a half of an inch. And that's why you use that reference. Is that not fair to say? 
Not necessarily. And remember, I wasn't there during the surgery, and I certainly wasn't able to measure the depth of penetration. Well, and of course, he may have said an inch and a half since you didn't write it down. You simply were calling on your memory and your knowledge of anatomy. Well, with knowledge of anatomy, it would be difficult to get more than an inch. Okay, that's a... It's not just a little nick. That is a... Can you estimate about the length of that defect? On the surface of her body? Yes. Well, the thing to do is measure it. Okay, well, there's no reason to estimate. Okay, how large do you recall it being? I don't. You don't remember? I didn't... No, I don't. Okay, you do recall it being... The court then says, please do not lean on the bench. Mr. Mulder says, judge, I'm sorry. Court says, thank you very much. Mr. Mulder says, you bet. Court said, let's don't do it again or you'll be sitting back down. And Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir. He then continues his questioning. Yes, would you say that it's an excess of an inch and a half? You wouldn't quarrel with that. I would measure it. Well, do you want to step over here and measure it? Well, you can. I'm perfectly happy to have you report to me whatever it happens to measure. Well, I measure it nearly an inch and three quarters or right at an inch and three quarters. Okay. Okay. And there were two wounds that could be characterized as defensive wounds then. There was another much smaller one. Okay. And did you know how deep that was? I could see it went into the dermis. Okay. Which is the deep portion of the skin. Okay. All right. The skin on one's forearm is probably less than an eighth of an inch thick. Okay, doctor, you said that with respect to whether or not these are self-inflicted or not self-inflicted, you can't say either way, basically. Is that correct? It could be either. Okay, and generally associated with a self-inflicted, say a suicide, for example, or attempted suicide, don't you have what are frequently referred to as hesitation wounds? They may be present. Okay, and is this just a situation where the individual, once they cut the skin, decide that maybe it's not that good of an idea after all, and then they jerk back or stop, and then they get a little more. And you will see a lot of jerks on the outer portions of the skin, won't you, traditionally? Yes, you may. Okay, and isn't it fair to say, in all fairness to Miss Routier, isn't it fair to say that her wounds are, in the neck, are quite deep for hesitation wounds? Not necessarily. Okay, is that another maybe yes, maybe no type of deal? I would say that usually what I think you're thinking of as hesitation wounds go into the dermis, but certainly I have seen hesitation wounds that went deeper than that into the musculature. Okay, traditionally, they aren't as deep as Mrs. Routier's, are they? Well, ordinarily, most of the hesitation wounds I have seen were not that deep. Okay, doctor, did you look at her medical charts? I've seen portions of her medical chart from that admission to Baylor. Did you make any copies of those? I made copies of a few pages from it, chiefly the operative report. Okay, now was she... Usually when you see hesitation wounds, you see a series of them, don't you? Oh, I've seen a few cases where there were only one or two. There are usually a few more than that. It's variable. Okay, now doctor, when you saw Miss Routier, was she... She wasn't ambulatory, was she? She was in the bed. Okay. Mr. Douglas Mulder then says, mark these, please. And the court says, what numbers will these exhibits be? Uh, Your Honor, they will be Defendant's Exhibit 1. The court then says, 1 through 5. Thank you, Judge. But I thought I would number them. Well, I can do that. Or I can do them. The court then says, whatever you wish. 
Mr. Mulder then says ABC. And the court then says, in the future, I would like for all, both sides, to have all their exhibits pre-marked prior to admitting them into evidence. Mr. Mulder then says, that's what I'm doing. The court then says, I mean, pre-marked before you come in with them, so we don't have to go through this delay. Mr. Mulder then says, judge, we don't know who the witnesses are going to be. There is no way we can put them on. Court then says, thank you. All right. So what are they going to be? Defendants exhibits number what? Mr. Mulder then says, I think that's a good idea. If I had a list of their witnesses and the order in which they'll be, I will have them pre-marked. The court then says, okay. Mr. Mulder says, could I expect that at the conclusion of the day? Mr. Greg Davis said, could we please have a stop to the sidebar comments, please? The court then says, sustained. Mr. Davis says, thank you. At which point they have a sidebar, which is not included in the transcripts. But eventually we have Mr. Mulder, the defense attorney, go back to questioning Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman. And he says, let me hand you what had been marked for identification record purposes as defense exhibits one through five. And if you'll examine those in the privacy of the jury box, the witness box, have you seen those? I recall seeing those before, I believe. All right, do those accurately portray the scene they seek to represent as they existed to you viewed Mrs. Routier on the date that you've described? They represent what I saw when I went to see her in the hospital. Mr. Mulder then says, we'll offer into evidence what has been marked and identified as defense exhibits one through five. Mr. Davis says no objection. The court says defense exhibits one through five are admitted. At which point Mr. Mulder continues questioning. Now, then he turns to the judge. I will hand these to the jury in a minute when I finish my examination. Now, doctor, did you notice any bruising on her arms? I did not. Okay, doctor, will you share with the jury some of your knowledge with respect to bruising, how it occurs, and how you know when I bump myself, it really doesn't look all that bad that day or the next day, but it's on down the line. What happens? What causes that? What bruising or contusions are is a breakage of very small blood vessels, usually capillaries in your skin or the subcutaneous tissue, or let's talk about the extremities to make things easy. The court then says, could you speak up just a bit louder? The witness then says, okay, let me try to repeat. We're talking about the breakage of very small blood vessels or capillaries in the skin or the subcutaneous tissues or the muscle, or sometimes all of those. If they break in the skin, usually you will see the bruise within 24 hours. If you bruise or break the blood vessels in deeper structures, then it takes a while, a variable length of time for the blood that comes out of the broken blood vessels to work its way up into your skin so that you can actually see a bruise. And I expect most of you have had that experience. We of course have bumped into things and by the next day have seen a bruise, but I expect most of us have bumped into something or gotten clobbered by something pretty hard and you didn't see anything for a day or two or maybe three or four, but eventually the bruise, as we say, comes to the surface and you do see it. Mr. Mulder then says, mark these two, please, and then continues his questioning. Doctor, let me show you what's been marked for identification for record purposes as defendants exhibits six through 10. And again, I'll ask you to examine those in the privacy of the witness box. Do you recognize Darlie Routier in those photographs? I can't say that I do. Let me see if I've got one that shows that. All right. The court then says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a 10 minute break right now. Thank you very much. May I see both sides 
um, whereupon a short recess was taken and after which time the proceedings were resumed on the record in the presence and hearing of the defendant and the jury as follows. The court says, are both sides ready to bring the jury in and resume? Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir. The defense is ready. Mr. Davis says, yes, sir. The state is ready. The court then says, all right, bring the jury back in, please. Court then says, all right, back on the record in the Darley Routier matter, let the record reflect that all parties of the trial are present and the jury is seated. All right, Mr. Mulder. Doctor, could you tell us, as best you recall, when you were asked to go to Baylor Medical Center to see Darley Routier? It was sometime during the day that I performed the autopsy on Damon. Sometime during the 6th of June? Yes. Okay, and you don't recall when that was, whether it was morning or afternoon? Not precisely. Okay. And you didn't make any notes about check out of the office or anything like that. Not that I recollect. All right. And I assume you didn't dedicate any sort of memo when you returned or dictate any sort of memo when you returned. No, I did not. So we're relying strictly on your memory. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Did you examine either of her hands? No. Did you ask to see her hands? I asked to be shown her injuries. Okay. I was shown her steri-strip neck, her steri-strip anterior left shoulder, and her right forearm. Okay. And who did you ask to see her injuries? The Rowlett police officer, the treating physician whose name escapes you, or... I was talking with one of the ICU nurses who in turn talked with the doctor and surgery resident who was the person who actually removed the dressings on her neck injury and on her anterior left shoulder injury. Okay, did you make any determination at that time as to the instrument that had caused those injuries? No. Okay, and doctor, how closely did you examine the injury to her right forearm? The longer one was sutured up the shorter one was not. I looked at them. Okay. I mean, you just eyeballed them from a distance of four or five feet. I was at the bedside. Okay. Did you examine her legs? No. Doctor, what is blunt trauma? Blunt force injuries are usually divided into three categories. There are lacerations, which are breaks or tears in the skin. And there are different, they are different from cuts or incised wounds. And they're different from stab wounds because as we've said, stab wounds and incised wounds are caused by a sharp edge, whereas lacerations are just that, they're blunt force injuries, so that the break or tear in the skin, as a rule, if you look into the depths of the wound, will have tissue bridging, what we call tissue bridging, which a stab wound or incised wound will not have. There are also contusions, which is the same thing as bruising or ecchymosis. That is what we were talking about. The idea of small blood vessels being broken and blood leaking out of these small blood vessels. And the idea is that it's blunt force that causes the breakage of the blood vessels. And you also have the third variety of blunt force injuries, which is abrasions. Abrasions are scrapes or scratches. Okay, doctor, where were you prior to coming to the medical examiner's office in Dallas? I was working in Denton at Ford's lab. Okay. And what were you doing there? I was a pathologist. Okay. Do they have a medical examiner in Denton County? No, they do not. How long were you there at Ford's lab? About six months. Do you have an independent recollection as to how long you were there at Baylor Medical Center with Ms. Routier on the 6th of June, 1996? As I've already mentioned, I was with her approximately perhaps 10 minutes. 
Mr. Mulder then says, I believe that's all. Thank you, doctor. And then Mr. Greg Davis gets up for his redirect examination. And doctor, I just have a couple of questions for you. Defensive wounds, when you see defensive wounds in your line of business, on what part of the body do you normally see those? I most commonly see defensive wounds on the hands. They're also seen on the forearms. Sometimes if the person winds up essentially fighting off the assailant with his or her legs, you'll see them on the feet and lower legs. Okay, when you see defensive wounds to the hands, can you please describe for the members of the jury what those defensive wounds look like when you see them? The most common thing I see when I see defensive wounds in the hands is what I see is deep incised wounds. Now I'm talking about deep incised wounds. Most of these wounds go all the way through the skin into the subcutaneous tissue on the fingers and on the palms. Some of them will go into or through tendons, sometimes all the way to the bone. Now it may sound real foreign to you, the idea of grabbing a knife, I know it does to me, but you've got to understand that these people are fighting for their lives. And the alternative to grabbing a knife is letting the knife come into their body, their neck, their head, their chest, their body organ area. So when push comes to shove, people will grab a knife and get these deep cuts on their hands. And that's what I most commonly see in the way of defensive wounds. Okay, and so does it go through the skin then? Almost all of them go into the deep dermis or through the skin into the subcutaneous tissue. What is subcutaneous tissue? It's actually fat. I don't know if you've ever seen a cut or a laceration all the way through the skin, but what you've got underneath your skin is a layer of fat, which is yellow. It's fat. And then when, what you've got underneath that is the muscle tissue. Okay. Now, when you looked at Darlie Routier on June 6, 1996, did you see any wounds to her hands that looked like what you've just been talking about? Mr. Mulder then stands up and says, excuse me, judge. She, she's already answered that. She said she didn't examine her hands. She didn't see her hands. Overruled, overruled. She can answer it if she knows. Go ahead. The witness then says, I didn't see any injuries to her hands. I didn't look at her hands. Mr. Mulder then says, and that's why if you don't look at the hands, Mr. Greg Davis says, I'm going to object to his comments. The court then says, sustained, let's both sides sit down, ask the questions, I'll rule on the objections and no sidebar. Is that clear, Mr. Mulder? Yes, sir. The court says, thank you. Mr. Greg Davis then says, now, you've also mentioned hesitation wounds. Now, how deep do hesitation wounds normally go? I would say most of the hesitation wounds I have seen go into the dermis. The dermis being the deep white part of the skin. You know, on the very surface, you've got a thin layer of epidermis, which is where the pigment is. And then you've got the deeper part of the skin, which is the dermis. And once you cut into the dermis, the dermis on everybody is absolutely pure white, pure white. And then under that, you've got the yellow subcutaneous fat. And normally, what do hesitation wounds look like? Well, I would say if you've got more than one, they will often crisscross and go into the dermis. Okay, may I see defense exhibits one through five, please? Mr. Mulder says, sure. Mr. Greg Davis says, may I approach your honor? Court, you may indeed. Mr. Greg Davis, doctor, if you would, looking at defense exhibit number five, how many wounds to the right forearm do you see there? I see two. Okay, do I have my finger on the longer one that's been sutured? Yes, you do. Okay, and is there a second wound to the right arm? Yes, there is. It's up there. Okay, above the first one? Yes. Can you tell us how deep this wound was? It was open and it went into the dermis. 
Is it fair to say it's much shorter? Yes. Can you tell whether or not that's a hesitation wound or not? It could be. Now, again, looking at Damon's wounds, is there any way for you to tell whether or not all four of these stab wounds were produced at the same time? No, there's not. Is it possible that stab wound, say, number one, occurred, and then some period of time elapsed before stab wounds two, three, and four occurred? That's possible. If only one of these stab wounds had occurred and then an interval of time had elapsed before stab wounds two, three, and four occurred, for instance, could this child have lived longer than the time period you've already talked about? That's possible. Can you give us an estimate of how long this child might have lived if, say, stab wound one had been inflicted and then the other three were inflicted sometime later on? What we're talking about a few to several more minutes. Okay, can you give us a ballpark figure of an outside time period there? A few to several more minutes. Okay, and how many minutes did you say this child could have lived if all four of them had been produced at the same time? A few minutes. Okay, no further questions. And then the recross by Mr. Mulder. Doctor, is there anything to suggest that those wounds were not all received at the same time or at approximately the same time? There's nothing. They don't suggest anything. Thank you. I believe that's all. Mr. Greg Davis then says no further questions. The court then says all right. Now, this witness, as I understand, will be returning to Dallas tonight. Is that correct, doctor? The witness says, I hope so. Court says, okay, well, I'm sure they'll get you out of San Antonio Airport. All right. So we are excusing this witness now for the time being. Is that right? Mr. Greg Davis says that. That's what we would ask, along with Dr. McLean, also subject to recall. The court then says, subject to recall. Mr. Mulder says, we wouldn't have any quarrel with that. The court then says, all right, thank you very much for coming, doctor. All right, next witness. At which point, Mr. Toby Shook, who is a member of the prosecution, says, judge, we'll call William Gorsuch. Now, William Gorsuch was actually a neighbor of the routiers, and he is the one who takes the stand next. And again, he is questioned by Mr. Toby Shook, who is part of the prosecution team. And he starts with, state your name, please. William Walter Gorsuch. Would you spell your last name, please? G-O-R-S-U-C-H. Where do you live, sir? 8401 Eagle Drive, Rowlett, Texas. Okay. And are you originally from Rowlett, Texas? No, I'm not. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Maryville, Missouri, Nottoway County. Okay. And when did you move out here to Texas? September of 1984. Okay. Do you have a family? Yes, I do. What does your family consist of? My wife and two children, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old. Okay. Boy and girl? Yes. Which one is the nine-year-old? The boy. Okay. What's his name? Jonathan. Okay. How long have you lived in Rowlett? I've lived in Rowlett since April of 1986. Okay. And to kind of orient the jury, tell the jurors where Rowlett's located near Dallas. Rowlett, Texas is located to the east of Dallas on Lake Ray Hubbard, the city reservoir. It's about approximately 35 miles from downtown Dallas. It's a suburb of Dallas, just east of Garland. The portion of Rowlett that you live in is that in Dallas County? Yes, it is. And for the record, in the state of Texas. In the state of Texas. 
Okay, how long have you lived at the location you're at now? I've lived at that house since November of 1992. Okay, prior to that, were you also living in Rollette? Yes, I was. Okay, and where did you live then? I lived at 8501 Woodside, which is approximately three blocks south of there. Okay, and how long had you lived there? Since April of 86. Okay, what brought you to Texas in the first place? A job. I originally, I worked originally for Rockwell International. Okay, uh, where do you work now? I work for the same company, but it has since changed hands. It's now Alcatel Telecom. Okay, and what type of work do you do with them? I'm a telecommunications engineer, support third tier. Okay, and you moved into that residence in 1992, November of 92, correct. Okay, describe that neighborhood for the jury. Is that a relatively new neighborhood or an old neighborhood? Dalrock Heights is relatively new, a relatively new neighborhood. When we moved to Rowlett in April of 86, that neighborhood was an open field. It started being built. I don't remember the exact date. It filled up rather quickly. We were probably the first 60% of the new homes being built in that area. Most of the homes in that area are 100,000 plus. Okay. May I approach the witness, Your Honor? You may. All right. Whoever has a beeper on, turn it off. Let me show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 6B. Do you recognize this as being a map of Rowlett? Yes, I do. Okay, is this how Rowlett appears in the Dallas area and a greater close-up of the area in that area that you live in Rowlett? Yes, sir. Okay, we'll offer State's Exhibit 6-B. Mr. Mulder says no objection. Mr. Shook says, okay, we'll offer 6-A and 6-B. Mr. Mulder says we don't have any objection to either one of them. The court then says State's Exhibit 6-A and 6-B are admitted. Mr. Shook then says, could I have the witness step down for a moment, judge? And court says, you may. And whereupon the witness stepped down from the witness stand and approached the jury rail and the proceedings were resumed as follows. Mr. Gorsuch, let me get you to step back so that all of the jurors can see, but let me hold the exhibit up. And if you could just first, on the lower portion of the exhibit, point out where Dallas is and where Rowlett is located in relation to Dallas. This is the Dallas area. Rowlett is a little bit northeast of Dallas. The upper map shows a closer view of Rowlett, and Rowlett is basically dissected in the center with Dalrock Road, which this is Rockwall County, and this is Dallas County. Eagle Drive is located in this area right here where the red dot is. And 5801 Eagle Drive, is that a neighbor's residence? It is a neighbor's residence. The court then says, Mr. Shook, could you move back just a little bit so the defense can get a good view too, please? Thank you. The witness then says, 5801 address, even though my address is 8401 Eagle Drive, comes up directly north and then turns directly west. The numbering system changes as it turns to go back south. The north-south street is a lowered number system than what my address is. And are you familiar with how big the city of Rowlett is? Yes. Is it a big or a small city? It's fairly large. It's approximately 35,000. When we moved there in 1986, it was only six. All right, if you could take your seat up there, whereupon the witness resumed the witness stand and proceedings were resumed. The neighborhood that you live in now, you've lived there since 1992, is that right? That's correct. And previous to that, you lived about three blocks away? Correct. 
Okay, describe the particular neighborhood to the jury. What is it like? It's a fairly upscale neighborhood as it's been described before. The neighborhood is mostly family oriented, lots of small children and kind of a bedroom community, so to speak. Most of Rowlett is a bedroom community. I mean, most people go to work between seven to eight o'clock in the morning and return home between five and six o'clock at night. Rowlett's pretty much deserted during the day. Do the Rowlett police, do they have a high profile presence in your neighborhood? Very. Okay, what areas do they patrol around your home? Any specific areas, they don't really have any. The police are in the area quite often, as according to the map there, Rowlett is kind of split by the lake, by Lake Ray Hubbard. So there's a part of Rowlett that's kind of by itself. It's almost a peninsula. The police are out in that area quite often because it's hard to get there. There's only really two roads that you can get to that side of Rowlett. So the police have kind of stations that they sit at in that area. So is it unusual to see police officers coming down your street at all times during the day or night? No. Okay. What about in the evening as far as traffic down your street? Is there a lot of traffic in your street? No, there isn't. Our street, as the map shows here shows, which is actually a little incorrect. It shows Eagle Drive going all the way to 66 Highway, which is now Lake Point Drive. Eagle Drive does not go all the way to 66. So it's for the most part is basically services our neighborhood and our neighborhood only. It does not have a major thoroughfare connection other than off of Dal Rock Road. Major traffic through the area up until about five, six or seven o'clock that night is typical for a normal neighborhood. After that, it drops off until probably about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then it drops again to almost nothing. Okay, now living in that neighborhood, have you come to meet several of your neighbors? Yes. Okay, did you meet Darlie and Darren Routier when they moved in? Yes, I did. Okay, were you moved in the neighborhood first or were they? We were. Okay, when did they move into that particular neighborhood? It would have probably been in the spring of 1993 to the summer of 93, somewhere in there. Okay, was there a house there when you first moved in or was it built? No, it was built. Okay, so they were the first residents of the house. Yes. Okay, and where is their house in relation to your house? Directly across the street. My house faces to the south, their house faces to the east. It's almost a direct corner from my house. Okay, and did they have children with them when they moved in? Yes, they did. Okay, how many children did they have? Two boys. And did you come to learn their names? Yes, I did. And what are their names? Devin and Damon. Okay, now you said you had a nine-year-old. Is that right? Yes. Okay, eventually did your nine-year-old become friends with them? Yes, he did. Okay, let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 9-A and 9-B. Do you recognize those photographs? Yes, I do. And are they photographs of Damon Routier and Devin Routier? Yes, they are. Let me show you States Exhibit 9-B. Is this a photograph of Devin Routier? Yes, it is. Okay, and was he the older boy? Yes, he was. Okay, and do you know how old he was? When? I don't understand the question exactly. When? Okay, let's go back to the summer of this year, June of 1996. Do you know how old he was at that time? Six, I believe. Okay, was he younger than your boy? Yes. How old was your boy back in June of 96? Eight. Okay, then States Exhibit 9-A, is this a photograph of Damon Routier? Yes, it is. Was he the youngest boy between Devin and Damon? 
Yes, he was. And how old was he back in June of 96? I believe he was two years younger, approximately. Okay, since your boy became friends with them, did you see them a lot? Yes, I did. Okay, did they play together a lot? Yes. Okay, and where did they play? The Routier's home, my home, yards, backyards, front yards. Boys play about anywhere. Okay, did you get to know Devin and Damon pretty well? Yes. Okay, how often did they play with your boy, Jonathan? We lead kind of a hectic life with soccer and school and scouts and everything. It was nothing uncommon to play two or three times a week and on the weekends when available. Okay, if your boy was around, were they usually out playing with each other? That or one of the other neighborhood kids and he would join in, yes. Okay, so you've had them in your home and your boy went over to the Routiers home. Yes, the Routiers themselves, did you know them very well? Not very well, no, I knew them by sight. Okay, let me ask you, did you see, do you see Darlie Routier in the courtroom today? Yes, I do. Okay, if you could point her out, please. The fourth chair from the left, the woman here in the dress seated at the table? Yes. Your Honor, if the record could reflect that the witness has identified the defendant. Yes, sir. And did you meet her husband, Darren, after they had moved in? Yes, I actually met him before they moved in. Okay, now you weren't close friends with either of the adult routiers, is that right? No. How many conversations have you had with the defendant, Darley Routier? One, possibly. Okay, how about Darren Routier? How many conversations have you had with him? Four, possibly. Okay, were these at either one of your homes, inside the homes, or where did these take place? Basically in front of the homes, different places, beside the homes, in front of the homes, in the street. Okay, but you weren't close friends with them, is that right? No. Okay, were they closer friends with other neighbors that are in the neighborhood other than yourself? Yes. Okay. Mr. Shook then says, may I approach the witness? And the court says, you may, and then he brings up some exhibits. I want to show you a couple of aerial photographs. One marked States Exhibit 8, the other marked States Exhibit 7. Do you recognize both of these photographs as being aerial photographs of your neighborhood? Yes, they are Dalrock Heights. Okay, and do they accurately reflect how your neighborhood looked, how the streets were situated back in June of 96? Yes, they do. Your Honor, can I have the witness step down for a moment? You may. Step down, please, sir. Watch your step. Now, Mr. Gorsuch, let me turn this display around and get on the other side. Looking at States Exhibit 7, we're looking at kind of an aerial photograph. The court then says, Mr. Shook, do you need a pointer or anything? Okay, go ahead. Mr. Shook then says, of the entire neighborhood. What do you call it? The Delrock? Delrock Heights area. The Delrock Heights area. Is this what this reflects? Yes, it is. Okay, the street labeled Delrock. Could you describe that for us? Delrock Road is basically a road that runs between Highway 66, a little point, or a little point north of Highway 66, which is about another quarter of a mile beyond what the picture encompasses here. It runs all the way to I-30, which is approximately two and a half miles south. Okay. And how far is Highway 66 in relation to this photograph? About a quarter of a mile beyond. It's probably in relation to the picture in the scale is somewhere in this area. Okay. It's east-west. Dell Rock Road is north-south. It's also the Dallas Rockwall County line. Okay. Eagle Drive is located right along here. Is that right? Correct until the corner, then it turns around this way. Okay, it is still named Eagle Drive once it comes down this way. Yes, it is. 
All right, and I think I'll give you the pointer. And if you could point, first of all, uh, where your house is located on this exhibit. My house is located right here at this corner facing north-south. Okay, and there's a marker on there, 5801 Eagle. Whose home is that? That's the Routiers. Okay, so you're directly across the street. Yes. And where does Eagle Drive eventually wind up over here as you go down? It would probably wind up in a dead end, approximately over here at a street that goes back south only to Highgate. Okay. And then continues back through another older division. Okay, so you were talking about earlier. You don't get a lot of traffic coming down Eagle during the evening hours. No. Okay, but in this general area, the Rowlett police are usually out making patrols all the time during the day. Making patrols, or you'll see them sitting also. Okay, and do they sit in this area? Just kind of sit and watch traffic go by or whatever? Yes, they do. The Lake Point Baptist Church at that time there is another part of the parking lot up in this area that has a sign that sits in the middle of the driveway. A lot of times they'll just sit in one of those four driveways and they'll just sit there and watch traffic go up and down Dalrock. Okay, let me show you State's Exhibit 8. We're looking at a little more close-up of the neighborhood, 5801. Is this the Routier's home? Yes, it is. Okay, can you, first of all, let's point out your house again. Can we see it in the photograph? 8401, right here. Okay. And do you know the other neighbors close to you? Directly east of me, this would be Terry and Karen Neal. Okay, there's an elderly couple that lives here. I don't know their names. There's an Oriental family that lives here. I do not know their name. There's a house that's not on this picture. It's on the larger one in this area, and that would be the Adams. Okay, now you're not close personal friends of the Routiers, is that right? That's correct. Just across the street, neighbors? Yes. Are there other neighbors here that are closer friends with them? Yes. Okay, who would that be? The Neals. The Neals right here. And the Adams, which is not on this picture. They would be located in this area. Okay, do you know the Adamses? Is that their last name? Uh, Mercedes and Mike, I believe. Okay, real quickly, can we see their house in this photograph? It would be this one here. Okay, so it's just a couple of houses down also. Yes. Okay, all right. As far as the boys playing, can you, your child, where did he play with the Routiers? Again, behind my house, which is located back here in front of the houses, the Neal's yard, their yard, behind the house, beside the house, kind of anywhere in this area is fair game. Okay, you can have a seat. All right. Now, Mr. Gorsuch, let me turn your attention to the morning hours of June the 6th, 1996, and ask you if you had to go into work that evening. Yes, I did. Okay. Actually, I guess, let me turn your attention to June the 5th, the day before that. Did you go into work those late evening hours? Yes, I did. I went into work at approximately 10 o'clock. Okay, and do you recall what day of the week that was? Wednesday, I believe. Okay, was it unusual for you to go into work at for late hours? It's not unusual. It's not common either. It's only one required. Okay, and what was your occasion for going into work on that day? A customer support of a telecommunication system that needed some work done to it, which we had to perform after hours because they don't like to take the telephone systems down during the middle of the day. Our work can only be done after midnight. The system was located in Pennsylvania, which is on the East Coast, which was 11 o'clock our time, midnight their time, which is when we could do the work. Okay. Had you been home earlier the evening hours at your house? Yes, I had. Okay. Had you seen the Routier children? 
Yes, I had. Devin and Damon? Yes. Now, the Routiers also had a small infant. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, did you have any contact with the infant? No. You just dealt with Devin and Damon? Yes, sir. Where did you see Devin and Damon on the night of the 5th? They were playing with my son. Again, kind of fair game area. They were in my backyard. I was mowing my yard. So I asked them to get out of the backyard and go to the front yard. Whenever I went to the front yard and started mowing, they were gone. The assumption was that they probably went across the street to the routiers. I later saw them riding bicycles, I believe, in the area around their side of the street. Again, staying away from my mowing. Okay, you were just doing that as a safety precaution. Yes. Okay, how long did they play with your son, Jonathan, that night? It was approximately until dark, probably 8 or 8.30. Okay, where's the last place that you saw Devin and Damon that evening? That I actually saw them was riding their bicycles in that area north of their home on the sidewalk. When you were out mowing the lawn? Yes. Okay, did you see Darlie Routier outside of her home that evening? No. Okay, how about Darren Routier? Did you see him? No. All right, you just saw the boys out there. Yes. Was that unusual not to see them outside of their home? No, not really. Okay, and you went to work around 10 p.m. that evening. Correct. Okay, how long did you stay at work? Until approximately 25 after 1. Okay, so 1.25 in the morning? Correct. And did you leave work at that time? Yes, I did. Prior to leaving work, did you make any phone calls? Yes, I did. Who did you call? I called my wife to let her know that I was on my way home. Anytime I work late in the night, I always call my wife and let her know I'm on my way home. She knows approximately how long it takes me to drive home, so it's safe for me to enter the house, so to speak. Do you own a handgun? Yes, I do. And she knows how to use it. Yes, she does. Okay. You want to let her know you're on the way home. Correct. Okay. How long did it take you to get home that day, that early morning of June 6th? In the early morning hours, driving from my workplace to in Richardson to Rowlett is only about a 20 or 25 minute drive. Okay, anything unusual happened to you on the way home? No. Okay, as you, what route did you take to get home? How did you get into the neighborhood there? How I get into the neighborhood is come down Dalrock, which actually connects the future 190. Dalrock Road comes across 66. Dalrock then comes to Linda Vista, which is the cross street there you saw coming from Dalrock, the first one from the north. Dalrock or Linda Vista then enters into the subdivision. It dead ends there on Eagle, make a right turn on Eagle and park right in front of my house. Okay, looking at the larger photograph, then you would have come down Dalrock past the Lake Point Baptist Church. Is that right? That's correct. Did you see anything at the Lake Point Baptist Church when you came home? A police officer sitting in the driveway. Okay. And he was sitting right here by Delrock Road? A little bit to the beyond where you can see on that picture again. It's a sign that sits down in the driveway. He was sitting there. They usually sit behind the driveway or behind the sign a little bit. Nothing unusual about that? No. Okay. About what time in the morning would this have been? This would have probably been probably a quarter to two or to 10 till two. Okay, 1.45 to 1.50 a.m. Correct. Okay, then you just turn down, is it Linda Vista? 
Linda Vista Drive. Then make a turn and come down Eagle? Correct. And parked right there in front of your house? Correct. Right there beside that blue van that's there now. Is that where you always park? Yes, it is. Okay. And looking at the larger photograph, it would be next to this blue van. Is that right? Yes. And then just go up the walkway and in the house. How many cars were out here in this little turnaround, this cul-de-sac that evening? Other than my two vehicles, they were the only ones in that cul-de-sac. Okay. And what kind of vehicle were you driving? An 85 red Nissan pickup. Okay. And there were no other cars in this area. Is that right? Correct. Where were your vehicles parked? Directly in front of my sidewalk there, where you see the manhole cover, little dot, right in front of the sidewalk. And the van is parked approximately where it is right now. Okay, does anyone else park out here? They do occasionally. Who is that? The Neals. Okay, your next door neighbors here at 8405. Correct. Okay, were there cars parked out there that morning? No. Okay, any cars parked out front? 5802? No. How about this side of the street, the right side of the photograph? Did you see any vehicles parked out there? No. Okay, now once you parked and got out of your car, what did you do? That being that time of morning, it was fairly warm that night, fairly muggy. I stood around and kind of looked at the stars, looked around at the sky. I like looking at the stars, the moon, the sky, whatever may be out that night, probably three or four minutes. Okay. Also going into the house that time of morning, the house is locked. So I just, I kind of check the neighborhood, look around a little bit and make sure that somebody is not going to follow me into the house, follow me up to the house. I'm fairly good size, but that doesn't prevent some people. I looked around, didn't see anything unusual or anything after I had looked at my stars and whatever and went into the house. Where were you standing when you were just kind of standing out, relaxing and looking up at the stars and looking around the neighborhood? Probably right beside my pickup or right in front of it. Okay, so just right out here in the street. No, to the left and forward. Okay, up here by the curb? Correct. Okay, did you take a look down both ends of Eagle that night? Yes, I did. Okay, this was your practice to do this to make sure to see if there was anyone around? Correct. Okay, could you see the Routier's home? Yes. Okay, do you recall if it was lit up at that time of at that time or not? No, I do not recall. There is a fountain that you can see there in the picture just to the left of their sidewalk. This fountain here? Yes, okay. It has three floodlights that are on the fountain, which illuminates the front of the home and most of the area around it pretty well. There is also a street light over on the corner on our side of the street. Here? To the right, the right of the van. Okay. You can see the pole barely there. Okay. I did not notice any lights out of the ordinary or unusual. No. So the floodlights were on, but that was the usual. Is that right? Correct. Overall, would you describe this corner of the neighborhood as pretty well lit? Yes. Okay. You got a street light here by your house. The Routier home has their floodlights. Are there any other street lights along there? There's another street light down west on Eagle, just to the left, I believe, of 8313 would be the next house. I think there's a street light there at that corner. Okay. There's another one down this way at the stop sign on the east. Okay, just down there? Yes. Okay, now as far as any vehicles that are parked out there, there's only your two vehicles that are in front of your house. Correct. And nothing in front of your two neighbors here. Is that right? That's correct. Anything along this side of the street at all? Not that side of the street, no. What about in front of the Routier's home? Did you see any vehicles? 
their Pathfinder. Okay. It's a green, I don't know what year, Pathfinder, dark green Pathfinder. Okay. Which was usually parked there just to the straight out from their sidewalk. In this area here, approximately there where the blue car is now. Yes. And that was the usual place it was parked. Yes. Okay. How many cars did the routiers have? Actually own? I don't know. Two that I've seen. Okay. Two that you've seen. The Pathfinder? Correct. What other car do they have? A Jaguar of some type. Where is that usually parked? Usually that's parked there in the back. Sometimes, yes, there in the driveway. Sometimes it would be parked out front in front of the Pathfinder. Okay. So sometimes they were both parked out there. Correct. But that morning, just the Pathfinder here. Yes, sir. Did you notice any un other unusual cars parked in front of 5717 or the other houses here? Not that I recall, no. So how about down the other side of Eagle? Did you take a look down there? The 8317 home, they only own one car. He's a retired doctor. He only owns one car and always parks it in the garage. So there's never any cars, hardly ever, in front of their house. 8313, again, they park in the back. The red car that you see there, just part of it in that picture, that car is there most of the time. So I believe it was there that night also. Other than that, those are about the only cars that park on the street. Everybody else uses their driveways or garages. Okay, anything else? Any cars parked on this side of the Routier's home? No. Or down here along the side street? No. Okay, and while you were out there for, what would you say, five minutes or so? Maybe five minutes, yes. Did you see anyone walking around? No, nothing unusual. Hear any unusual noises? No. Okay, and this was, you got home around about 1.50 or so. 1.50, quarter till two. Okay, then you got into the house, I take it. Yes, okay. I guess you safely made it in the house with your wife knowing you were coming home. Correct. Okay, and where was your wife located? In the bedroom upstairs. Okay, where is your bedroom located at the house? In the picture there, you see the sidewalk going up to the house. There are two windows to the left of that sidewalk. That's the first floor. The second floor is cut off. Right here? Yes, the master bedroom is located above those two windows. Okay, so your windows, do they face the routier's home? Yes, they do. Okay. And do you recall how long it took you to get upstairs and into your bedroom? I came in, locked the door, turned on the alarm system, checked the other windows and doors downstairs, got a drink, put my things up for the night and went upstairs. It was probably in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. You have an alarm system there in your house? Yes, I do. Who installed that? I did. Okay. You turned that on? Yes. Okay. Is that your usual practice? Yes, it is. And you also secured the rest of the downstairs? Yes. Okay. So give us your best estimate as to when you got upstairs into the bedroom. Estimate of time, probably sometime five after two to 10 after two. Okay. And does it take you long to get into bed? No. Okay. Now, Mr. Gorsuch, was your windows up or down that evening? It was a warm evening and my wife and I do not care for air conditioning very much. So we have our windows open most of the time. They were open that evening. Yes. Okay. So it's not unusual for you to not run the air conditioner in the evening. No. And it wasn't running that night. No. Okay. Window was open. Yes. Okay. Do you have any problem hearing noises with the window open there? No. Okay. The design of the area, the houses are kind of an arc as well as with the wind. There's usually a pretty good wind that comes directly up the streets. It's usually very quiet at that time of morning. So noises are not a problem. No. 
Okay, and then did you try to go to sleep? Yes, I did. About what time would it have been then when you tried to go to sleep? Again, probably 10 after, 15 after two, somewhere in that vicinity. Okay, and were you able to go to sleep? Yes, okay. Now, did something wake you up soon after that? Yes, okay. What time was that that you were awakened? The first time that I was awoken, I really don't know. I did not look at the clock. It didn't break my sleep completely. I felt something, a noise of some kind that did wake me. What noise? Do you know? I do not know. A loud noise of some type. Again, it's if you hear something in the dark or the night, you hear it only once and you're asleep or trying to go to sleep, it's hard to tell what the noise was. All you know is that it was a noise. Okay. I don't know what time it was. It was sometime after I tried to go to sleep or after I did go to sleep and it woke me. A short time thereafter, I was awoken again, though, and this time it was a full awakening. Okay, and what woke you at that time? What woke me at that time was Darren Routier running from the front of the home down the sidewalk, yelling that someone has stabbed my children or my kids and my wife. Okay, someone has stabbed my children and my wife. Yes. Is that your best recollection of what he was yelling? That is my best recollection. Yes. Okay. And tell the jurors how he was yelling. That was he very loudly, almost broadcasting it to the neighborhood is a danger. You know, he wanted somebody to hear him. Okay. And you had no trouble hearing him. No. Okay. When you heard that, what did you do? I immediately sat up in bed. And naturally, when you hear something like that, you're going to listen to see what's going on. I immediately sat up in bed. And as I sat up in bed, I have a water bed that sits up fairly high. I can look directly out the window, directly down. And I saw Darren approximately even with the fountain. Okay. Do you recall what he was wearing? I recall it was blue jeans, I believe, only. Okay. Just blue jeans? Yes. Okay. And he was standing near the fountain? Yes. Okay. Well, he was running near the fountain. He wasn't standing. Okay. Did you see anyone else out there? Yes, I did. Who did you see? I saw a policeman coming up over the bank. As I leaned up in bed, I could look out the window and see a pretty good picture or pretty good view of the street. There's a police car sitting a little bit ahead of where the car is there now. Okay, let me get you, if we could, with the court's permission, if we could have the jurors step down for a moment. Court says, all right, that's fine. Maybe you can use the pointer, Mr. Shook. Mr. Shook says, okay. The court says, if you will just wait a minute for everyone to find a position around there. Okay. Can the jury all see that? Okay. Mr. Gorsuch, if you can step over here to the side. Okay. And again, on the photograph, point to the area that you first saw Darren Routier. Okay. Darren Routier was approximately in this area here. There was a police squad car parked away from the curb, a little bit in this area, a little bit ahead of the direct front line of the home, which is parked close to the front. He was actually parked around to the side about in this area. Okay. And which way was he pointed? He was pointed west. Okay. Did you see a police officer out in that area? Yes, I did. He was approximately in this area. There is a small bank here. It comes up from the sidewalk into the yard. It runs approximately around in about this area. He was already up over the side of that bank and was coming up about in this area here at the corner of the house whenever I sat up in bed. Okay, that's the first thing you see when you look out. Correct. Okay, what was the next thing you saw happen? The next thing I saw happen was Darren stopped about in this area and he came around between the fountain and his house and met the police officer in this area. 
they both came back between the house and the fountain and then went into the house. Okay. Now, did you hear anything said between Darren and the police officer at that time? I heard something said, but I could not understand what was said. Okay. And then they go into the house? Yes. Okay. What time do you, what do you do at that time? I got out of bed. My wife was awake at that time. She heard basically the same thing. So she and I both got out of the bed. We kind of went to the window and looked, of course, to see what was going on. At that time, all we could see was a police car sitting there. Okay. Did you look around the street to see if you could see anything else? Yes, I did. Okay. Did you see anything else there in the neighborhood? No, nothing in this area other than what I've already described. My pickup, the Pathfinder here, and my van there, the police car here. Okay, so there's your two cars in front of the house. Yes. Now the police car is parked here? Yes. And the Routier's Pathfinder is in front of their house? Yes. Are there any other cars out there that you see? No. Any other cars at your neighbors here at 5802 or anything like that? No. Okay, what's the next thing you saw? The next thing I saw were the police officer and Darren come back out of the house. Okay. The police officer and Darren then, the police officer basically told Darren to go find somebody else in the neighborhood, ask him if there was somebody else. Darren said yes. Darren came across the street, went to the Neal's house and beat on their door. Okay. Now, did another police officer arrive soon after that other officer? Yes. Okay. Where was his car located? It was parked somewhere in this area here. He had pulled up and stopped fairly quickly somewhere out here in the middle of this area. Okay. And where did he go? He went to the house also. Okay. Now you didn't have a stopwatch on or anything, did you? No. Okay. Do you know how long it took this other officer to arrive on the scene? No, I do not. Okay. But another officer pulled up soon thereafter. Very soon thereafter. When Darren Routier emerged from the house again, was this other police officer there also? Not yet. Okay, did he arrive soon after that? Yes. Okay, and you're observing this from your bedroom window, is that right? That's correct. Okay, what's the next thing that you remember happening? The next thing I recall happening was when Darren was here beating on the Neil's door with the second officer arriving and what I had already heard, it occurred to me that, you know, that maybe there is somebody around that I need to find for them or look to see if there is anybody. My house has windows across the back of it on the second story as well as one on the west side. It has a pretty good view of everything in our alley. There's a large fence that runs between our property here and the church. I can see the alley several houses down to the west. I can see across the church parking lot through the fence or over the fence. The fence is approximately a nine foot fence, so it's pretty hard to scale. I can also see the alley going this way for probably about down to the corner here. I immediately went and looked out that. After I didn't see anybody there, I went back to my bedroom, picked up my pistol and went downstairs. Okay, and again, were you timing that? How long it took to look out the windows, that sort of thing? No. Okay, when you last heard and looked, Darren was next door beating on the door. Is that right? That's correct. And you said the Neils live there. The Neils live there, Terry and Karen. That's Terry and Karen Neal? Yes. And those are close friends of the routiers in the neighborhood, in my opinion, yes. Okay, you went outside your home, is that right? That's correct. After I went downstairs, I turned off the alarm system and came out the front door. I have two large cut pillars here with an archway above my door. And I stood approximately here to this of the door beside the pillar. Okay, once you got outside the house, had some more cars arrived on the scene? Yes, 
Okay, what cars were those? They were some more police officers and an ambulance. There's an ambulance approximately right here, okay? There was another ambulance that came and parked in this area with the police car behind it. The ambulance was just in front of the Pathfinder. The police car was back in this area. They were starting to be more and more cars. There's also a MCU fire truck that came and parked in this area. They were fire, there were fire again, fire response vehicles, ambulances, and police cars. How many and where exactly? It's hard to keep track, okay? From the time this ambulance arrived, before this ambulance arrived here though, there was a car that came into this area. It was a dark colored car, older model, Cutlass, I believe is what it was. It had some younger people in it and the police officer that had come in this car was over here. They came across and stopped this vehicle. Okay, this is the second officer that arrived on the scene. Yes, the second officer was actually the one that, I do not believe he actually made it to the house yet. Okay, when he stopped the vehicle, the other officer came out as well. The ambulance came during that time frame. The car here was stopped. The individuals in the car, I believe there were four of them, they got the individuals out at gunpoint and basically spread eagle on the car. Okay, so this other car you saw, was that the first car that you saw moving that was not a police vehicle or an ambulance or a fire truck? Yes, okay. And were you downstairs when you observed this car come by the house? Yes. The police officers immediately stopped that? Yes, and take people out by gunpoint? Yes. Okay, did you see them do anything to the car at that time? They searched the car, interior, as well as trunk. While they had the people out of the car, they questioned the people. It looked like they were looking at licenses, IDs, things like that. Did they also search those individuals? Yes, they did. Okay. Did they let those people go on their way? Yes, they did, after a period of time. Okay, and you're observing this all from your porch, I take it. Yes. Okay, where was Darren Routier at this time? Darren was coming back across the street before, or it was right after actually, this car was stopped. He was still over here with Terry and Karen. Terry came out of the house first with Darren and came back across the street. Karen came out afterwards. Okay, it took Terry evidently a while to get up and out of bed once he was awakened. Yes, he was the first out though. Yes. Okay, had the paramedics gone into the house at that time? Yes, as Terry and Darren were coming across the street, the paramedics again did arrive and they were coming into the house at that time. Yes. Okay, what's the next thing that you observed? The next thing I observed was once Terry and Darren came across the street, they came up to the front of the house. There was another officer that had arrived at that time also. He was there in front of the house also. He was watching this that was going on here. He was here. Darren and Terry came across the street. Karen came out shortly thereafter, I think before Terry and Darren even entered the home. Carrie came out and Karen came out and came across the street also. They waited and the three of them entered the home. Okay, and how long were Terry and Karen in that home? I'm not real sure. It was a short period of time. Okay, again, you didn't have a stopwatch on it. No, but it was a short period of time. Yes. And did they leave with anyone at that time? Did you see anyone leave when they left that house? Were they with anyone? They were with a police officer. Yes. Okay, could you describe how they left the house? They were basically being escorted. It was a police officer, I think, and possibly a paramedic, I think. Okay, it was either a paramedic or a police officer. Again, it was somebody in uniform. Okay, and they they were both on the scene at that time. 
they weren't physically throwing them out. No, no, they were helping them, almost, okay? It was more of a help escort than a forcible escort. But it was a short period of time that they were in there. Yes, okay. What's the next thing that you observed? Did you observe anyone else coming out of the house after that? After a period of time, other than the police officers? No. Okay, what about any of the children? It was a period of time again, exactly how long, I don't know. The smallest one, to be honest with you. I could never keep their names straight. Devin and Damon, you always saw them in pairs, so it was just always Devin and Damon. I don't know which one it was. It was the smallest one, was brought out through this area and placed in this ambulance with two paramedics. Okay, and did you see Darley Routier being brought out? Not at that time. Okay, sometime later, she was brought out. She was brought out and she was placed in an ambulance here behind the second ambulance. Okay, did more police officers continue to arrive upon the scene? Definitely. Okay, did neighbors start to come out and gather around? Yes, they did. Neighbors from basically all over the neighborhood came and started gathering, basically in this area as well as this area here. Okay, why were they gathering across the street here? The gathering was kind of controlled by the police and their tape. There was a taped area. And it went kind of from this area up and across through this light pole, through these mailboxes and down through this area to the, this corner of the house. Somewhere in that vicinity is exactly where the tape was, I don't recall. It was in two or three different places. Are you talking about the yellow police tape? Yes, okay. So it stretched actually across the street and went along the other side of the street. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, did it enclose your cars? Yes, it did, okay. How quickly did the police put up that particular tape? It was a very quick. When the ambulance here that had the smallest child in it had first pulled out, it was almost as soon as it pulled out, the tape went up, okay? They had to actually lift the tape up to allow the second ambulance out, okay? And you said that the neighbors gathered. They gathered on the other side of the tape? Yes, in this area behind the tape, okay? Were any of the neighbors allowed to go beyond that tape? No. From your observations, did the police keep everyone out from outside of that tape? Most definitely. Even before the tape was up, did you observe the police officers' actions as far as letting people on the property, things like that? As far as the police officers themselves, the police officers themselves were the only ones other than Terry and Karen that I saw try to enter the property, and Aaron. Okay, other than that, I saw no one else attempting to even enter the property. Okay, so the only persons you saw go into the house were Darren and Karen and Terry. Well, the paramedics and the police officers. The paramedics and the police officers? Correct. By the time you saw Karen and Terry go in, they were in just a short time. Correct. Where they went, do you have any idea? I don't have any idea. From what Karen said, whenever she came back out, the assumption is that she did go into the area where the boys were she did describe it to a little bit of detail, not much. She became, she's a nurse. She's a registered nurse. She knows the paramedics, they knew her. Somehow though, the confusion that when she came over, she was confused and she thought that she was supposed to help. So she did attempt to help. Okay, but was she in there resuscitating those boys or anything like that? No, she's a, they basically, they turned around to follow or to walk back to the area, I guess. From what she said, just from what she had told me, that she went to the area, but they wouldn't let her do anything. That's when they escorted her and Terry back out. So again, it was a very few minutes that that actually occurred. 
Okay, steps in, goes in, but doesn't help and is ex escorted out. Correct. Okay. And from the short time that you saw them enter and come back out, would that be consistent with what you saw there? She was not in there a long time. Correct. Okay. Did you see anyone else? Any other civilians? Anyone else other than the police and paramedics then go into that house? No. Okay. And then after they had the scene tied off, did you see anyone other than police officers go inside that house? No. Okay. Even before the tape was up, did the officers have this area shut down pretty good? Yeah, they had the area shut down pretty well. The entire area down through here was choked with emergency vehicles, fire trucks, police cars, ambulances here, police car. There was another police car up in this area. There was a car that did try to come from the west direction, but it was stopped, backed up, and went down the Allen Street. There wasn't really any way anybody could go through this area, okay, via a vehicle. The only other car you saw, other than an emergency vehicle, was that first car that the police stopped. That's correct. Okay. And when you first woke up on hearing Darren Routier is saying, quote, someone's stabbed my wife and my kids, you looked out. Did you see any other vehicles other than the ones you have described? No. One police officer and then the Routier's vehicle and your two cars. Correct. No other vehicle. Correct. Okay. From that time on, did you pretty much stay out in this area? basically stayed up here in this area. I didn't venture too far out from the house. The only reason was I still had my pistol in my hand. With the shock of what was going on and everything, it didn't dawn on me till the last minute that there's police cars all over the place and I'm standing in front of my house with a gun in my hand. Not too safe a thing to do? No, it wasn't. Wasn't too smart. But again, I was in shock. Didn't understand what was going on, really. Once I realized that, I went back directly inside the door at some point, put the gun back in my file cabinet in the top drawer, and came back out the door. From that point forward, I was in the front of my house, down my sidewalk, back to the front of my house. I was outside from that point on until probably nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay, where was Darren Routier? Darren most of the time was escorted basically by Terry over and sat here in this area at the end of the sidewalk at the Neals. During the whole time of them bringing the smallest child out, bringing Darley out, he was in this area and was allowed to escort across by the police officers once Starley started being brought out. Okay, did he go to the ambulance area at that time? Yes, he did. Okay, and did someone eventually take him away from the scene? Yes, they did. Who was that? Terry Neal. Okay, the neighbor again here at 8405? Yes. That's the one he woke up? Yes. Okay, and whose vehicle did they leave in? The Routier's Pathfinder. Okay, and who was driving? Terry. Did you see an officer out there with a the dog? Yes, I did. The Garland canine unit arrived at some time and it was parked down in this area. So exactly when they arrived, I don't know. They did search with the dog around in this area in the front of the home, down the alley, down the side, as well as in between the homes. They really didn't go across the midpoint of the street anywhere. They searched this area and both back and behind and in front of the home. That's about it. Okay, so you saw him out front and then you saw him go up behind the home? Yes. Okay, and I guess a crowd was gathering there on the outside of the tape? Yes. Okay. And at this point, Mr. Toby Shook says you can go ahead and have a seat up there. So it's clear. Did you, were you able to determine what time it was when you woke up with Darren yelling? It was approximately 2.40. Okay. I have a clock, an alarm clock beside the bed. And as I recall, it was around 2.40. Okay, did you look at the clock when you woke up? Yes, at 2.40 in the morning, yes. 
Okay, now the Routiers have an infant son. Do you know what his name is? I don't recall. Okay, did somebody take that baby out of the house sometime that during the morning? Yes, they did. Okay. The police officers took it out of the upstairs bedroom somewhere. That's where Karen said they took the baby from and gave it to Karen. Okay. And they took it out of the residence and then they gave it to Karen. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Eventually, did you and your wife take custody of the baby sometime that morning? Yes, we did. Okay. And in fact, did y'all care for the baby later on through the day? Yes, we did. How long did y'all have the baby there? We had the baby probably from around 11 a.m. until maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, did the police ever get anyone to help them retrieve the Routier's dog from the house? Yes, they did. Karen again, who knew the inside of the home as well as the pet. A police officer, from what Karen had said also, was that a police officer had almost been bitten by the dog at some point. The dog was in the home and they wanted the dog out. They were afraid to do anything with the dog and they wanted to know if anybody thought they could get it. So again, they allowed Karen to go in the home and retrieve the dog. Okay, did she go in there by herself or was she escorted into the house? She was escorted. By how many police officers? Two. Okay, and how long were they in the house? Minutes, very few minutes. Okay, do you know where they went in the house? No, not for sure. Okay, but Karen did, Karen emerge with the dog soon after that? Yes, okay. That's all the questions I have. We'll pass for cross-examination. And the court then says, Mr. Mulder. And at this point, uh, Mr. Douglas Mulder, the defense attorney, gets up and begins his cross-examination of Mr. Gorsuch. Yes, sir. Mr. Gore, is it Gorsuch? Yes, it is. Mr. Gorsuch, just a thing or two. Gosh, have you, have you made any notes? No, I have not. You didn't need to make any notes about this? No, it was pretty well fixed in my mind whenever I saw it. Did you... When was the first time you were contacted by the police? That morning? It was approximately 7 o'clock. Do you remember who the police officer was that contacted you? No, I do not. I didn't ask his name. What did he look like? He was in a blue uniform. That's all I can recall. That's the best you can do? By 6 o'clock in the morning, that's the best I can do. Yes, sir. So it was a male. Yes, it was. Okay. And I guess you told him basically what you have told the jurors. Yes, I did. And gosh, that must have taken you some time. It did. Okay. He interviewed both my wife and I. Okay. I assume he took notes. Yes, he did. Okay. Would you recognize him if you were to see him again? Probably not. Okay. Did you notice what he was writing down? No, I did not pay attention to what he was writing. Did he seem to be taking voluminous notes or was he noting things appropriately? I felt he was noting things appropriately, probably, yes. But you say you saw him making some notes as you went along. Yes, okay. About how long did you visit with him? 15 to 20 minutes, probably. Okay, and told him basically the same thing that you told the folks here. Basically, yes. To the extent, no. Well, now I kind of got lost in the dialogue there, but as best as I recall, you had to go to work and you left the office and I think you left at 125 and called your wife again, as you explained to us why, and you made it home. I said, I think you said you were home. I think the prosecutor said 150 and you said 145 between 145 and 150. That's correct. All right. 
And then you did the business with the stars and the moon and went on in and checked the windows and turned on the alarm that you had installed and went on up to bed. Correct. Okay. All right. Now, you were first awakened. And like you said, you didn't understand what the noise was, but apparently you drifted back off to sleep. Correct. And then were awakened. What what awakened you the second time? Do you know? Darren yelling. Okay. And is that when you looked at the clock? Yes, it is. Okay. Is your, you know, sometimes I'll set my clock a little bit fast just so that hopefully I get to where I'm supposed to be on time. Do you set yours right? I bet you set yours right on the money, don't you? Yes, I do. Okay. So it was 2.40, you're telling us. Yes. A guy like you would keep an accurate clock, wouldn't he? I suppose so. Yes. All right. And you're telling this jury that it was 2.40 when Darren started to yell. Correct. And I believe you said that he was going down there. That is the walk to his front door, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. And the police officers had pulled up there just down from you. Can you see that? Mm Mm-hmm. The court then says, I think you better turn it a little bit more, Mr. Mulder, so those two end jurors can see it. All right. I believe you said the police car went right here. No, I'm sorry. Back a little bit. Here? almost a full car length in front of where that car is shown there in the picture. Here? Yes, somewhere in that vicinity. Okay, but more in front of your neighbor's house than in front of your house. No, not really. The neighbor's house there you can see in. It was actually almost sitting directly on our property line. There is a white line there in the picture. Yeah, That's a mow line between his and my house that always keeps the grass dead for some reason. The car was parked almost even with that line, somewhere in that vicinity, almost right there by that mailbox. The back or the front? The back or the front of the car? Squad car, yes, if you remember. About the middle, actually. About the middle. Whenever I make a reference, it's usually the middle of a vehicle. Fair enough. All right. And it was headed in this direction? West. Correct. Right. Going this way. Yes. Okay. Was it parked up close to the curb? No. About how far was it from the curb? Three feet, four feet. All right. And did you see the police officer actually get out? I didn't see the police officer get out of the car. By the time I heard Darren yelling, the police officer was already across the street and was going up the small embankment there by their home right there where your finger is from the sidewalk. Okay, and he and Darren met. Yes, on the sidewalk. No, basically a little bit to the, move your finger. Okay, if you look at the fountain and the house, draw a direct line between them. The corner of the house, about halfway in between. In here, about in there. Okay, they met there and then went directly into the house. Yes. Okay, now how long were they in the house before the next thing that attracted your attention happened? Did they come out of the house or did another car come up or what? They weren't in the house very long. They were in the house for a while. Okay, minutes again, I don't know. Okay, would you say a couple of minutes maybe? Probably longer than that, probably three. About the time it took you to look at the stars, five minutes? Three to four, five, somewhere in that vicinity. Again, I don't know for sure. All right. I don't, by this time, no other car is there yet. No. Okay. So both of them came out. Is that right? Correct. Came out together? Yes. 
and no other police cars or ambulance or anything like that yet. Not yet. Okay, they've been outside or inside for five minutes doing, of course, you have no idea of knowing what they have been doing in there. No, I don't. All right, but anyway, they came out together five minutes later, and where did they go? They were eventually at the front door, and the officer asked Darren if he had somewhere in the neighborhood that he could go. You heard him ask that? Yes, I did. Okay. And you're in your perch up there on the second floor in your bedroom on the waterbed. Yes. Where you can look out. Yes. Okay. And you heard him ask Darren, is there somebody in the neighborhood from whom you can get some assistance? Yes. Medical help? No. All right. Just assistance? Just assistance. And he said there's a nurse across the street? No. He said what? He basically asked Darren if there was a friend in the neighborhood he could go to, and Darren said, yes. And you heard this dialogue between them. Yes, I did. Okay, and where did Darren go? Darren then went to 8405 Eagle. All right, and that's the nurse? The Neals, yes. And she's a registered nurse? She is, yes. Okay, where did the police officer go? He went back in the house. Okay, no other ambulances or police cars or anything at that point. Not at that point. Now, looking at your clock, it's now 2.45 and then some? I don't know. Okay. Again, I didn't look at my clock at that point. All right. From that point forward, I didn't pay any attention to time. Does he make it over to the Neal's house before anything else happens? Yes. Okay. So he's in the Neal's house and there are no other police officers here or ambulances or anything else. I don't recall whether he went in the house or not. I know he was beating on the door. Okay. Whether he entered the Neil home or not, I don't know. What was he saying? I did not hear that conversation. Okay. And you don't know, was he saying something? Was he saying help or something like that? I did not hear the conversation. But you could hear him banging on the door. Very well. Yes. Okay. How long was it before he started back across the way with the Neils? Minutes-wise, again, a few minutes. By that time, the second officer had arrived and parked there in front of 5802. Okay, what had this officer done? He was already back in the house. He had gone back in the house? Correct. And then the second officer parked in front of 5802 over here? Yes, okay. And that would be the, let's see, the retired couple? The retired couple. I don't know their names. All right, and the police officer parked in that area? Yes, do you remember how he was parked there? Kind of north, northeast, he was pulled in to an angle. So he would be headed in this direction. No, north, northeast, headed the other direction. This way? Yes, the top of the map is north. North, northeast would be about 45 degrees pointed in the opposite of, there you go, right there. All right, so had he come from this direction and pulled in there? It appeared that he had, yes. Did you see him as he was coming down here? No, he had arrived as I was coming back to the window. Okay, all right. Did you see him get out of his vehicle? Yes, I did. Okay, and where did he go? He started across the street in the direction of this residence? Yes, okay. Where was, was Darren knocking on the door at that time? Darren was waiting at the door. Okay, apparently he was waiting for Terry. All right. He would just be a stone's throw from where that police officer pulled his squad car up. Would that be about the distance from here to the back of the courtroom, wouldn't it? Well, most of those homes are 25 to 30 feet off the sidewalk line by the Rowlett ordinance. 
So that probably would be about 40 feet to 50 feet. Yes. All right. Did he? So did he make it over to this house before Darren left the Neil house? No, he did not. All right. What happened? The officer actually started over towards the house, as I recall. This is whenever I was coming out the front door. All right. And standing by my column there at my house, the officer had, is that where you were? Excuse me? That's where you were, right here? That's correct. All right. The officer had possibly entered the home and come back out or had not entered the home yet. Which officer? Exactly which one? The second officer to arrive, I believe. Okay, so he either entered this house and came back out before Darren and the Neils got over there. Terry Neal, yes. Okay, both Neils did not come together. Okay, Terry was first, wasn't he? Terry was first. Okay, and the, I want to make sure I understand you. This officer who parked over here, the second officer to arrive, made it into the house and back out of the house? I said I think he might have. I don't know for sure. Again, I was in the process of going down my stairs. Okay. Whenever I came out the door, this car had come from the west and was being stopped by the two police officers. There's another officer that had arrived down beyond Eagle Drive there, down below. Those two officers, I believe, were the two that stopped the car. Again, which two officers they were, I don't know. They were in blue uniforms. All right. You don't know whether it was the same two officers who had originally... No. Okay. Where is... I'm interested in this officer over here that stopped here. Okay. Okay. He was the one who was pulling up when you came back to your vantage point there at your house. Well, he had already pulled up. He was stopped, but he was getting out of the vehicle. Yes. All right. Was he hurrying towards this house? He was not running, you know, I mean, a police officer carrying a gun and a full belt and everything. They don't run real fast, but he was moving quickly. Yes. Moving in a fast walk. Yes. Okay. And again, where was Terry Neal? Terry and Darren, again, were at the front of their home. At the front of the Neal home here? Yes. Okay. Well, he had a head start on them heading toward the Routier house, didn't he? Yes, he did. It makes sense that he would arrive there first. I would assume. Okay, and when did Darren Routier get back to his house, if he did? After the car was stopped. After the car was stopped over here? Approximately in that area? Yes, right there where your finger is. All right. Somewhere in that vicinity. So after the car was stopped here, in this vicinity, this is the little cutlass, I think you said it was? I believe it was a cutlass. It was a dark car of some type. It looked like a Cutlass or that body style. It was an older, late model car. Older, late model? Older car, early model, pardon me. Okay, would you venture to guess as to, I mean, 85 or 86, something like that? Is that what you were talking about? I would say probably late 70s or early 80s. It was a smaller body style like a Cutlass. Okay, could you see the people that got out of the vehicle? I think you said that the police had them out spread eagle. Yes. Okay. And gosh, by now it's got to be by your count, 250, 255. Again, I wasn't looking at the clock. I don't know. Well, would you imagine somewhere in that vicinity? Probably. It was at least pushing three o'clock, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Probably. Okay. Again, I don't know. All right. But we do know this, that Darren has left and he has not come back in, right? That's correct. Okay. So they get these people stopped. How many were in the car, as best you recall? As best I recall, four. 
All right. And were they all men? As I recall, yes, all men. Okay. From my distance, about 50 feet, they looked like men, young men. Okay. Could you tell about how old they were? Late teens, probably. Could you describe them? No. You could just tell that they were men. I could tell that they were men. Do you know whether they were black or white, long hair or short hair, anything like that? I believe they were all Caucasian. Yes. Do you remember how they were dressed? No. Okay. I mean, did they have just long pants on, I guess? I believe they had on jeans, probably. Again, I don't recall. Okay. And however long it took to check them out, the police checked them out and they let them go, right? Correct. All right. And they drove on. And was it then that Darren came back to the residence here? It was actually during the time that they had them stopped. During the time that they had them stopped, Darren came back to the residence. Darren and Terry came across the street and did and entered the residence. Yes. And I believe you said that Mr. Neal, actually, he was ahead of Darren, wasn't he? Didn't you say? No, I don't believe I did say that. Okay. Was Karen behind them? Karen was behind them. Yes. Okay. They came over. Did Terry and Darren go into the residence? No, not yet. They waited for Karen. Okay. And I guess Karen came along shortly. Yes. By now it's got to be three o'clock. Is that fair to say? I don't know. Okay. All right. And all three of them went in together. Yes. Okay. How long was it before they came out? Again, minutes. A couple of minutes? A couple of minutes, three minutes maybe, if that long. All right. Did all three of them come out? Yes, they did. All right. And where did they... They were escorted out, actually. They didn't come out under their own power. Okay, the police escorted them out. It was actually an ambulance crew that had arrived while that car was being stopped. Okay, so the first ambulance crew that arrived, arrived while this car was being stopped here. Yes. All right. You're sure about that? Yes. Okay. You're sure that there wasn't an ambulance crew that came up at the same time that this officer did? No. All right. If it was there at the same time, it was very close to the same time, but it was after. All right. Well, wait a minute now. When I asked you if he went in the house the second time, you were talking about the police officer from here? Again, I assume he went into the house. I don't know for sure. Okay. And you said that then some police officers stopped a car here, further around the corner, right here, further around the corner, right here, further around the corner, here, approximately in that area. Okay. Stop them here. Yes. Got them out of the car, frisked them and threw them up against the car. Didn't they? Yes. Okay. And let them go on their way. Right? Yes. And then the ambulance arrived. No, the ambulance arrived while the car was stopped. While the car was stopped. Correct. Okay. And how many people was that the first ambulance to arrive? Yes. And where did it park? Almost directly across the street from the police car. Which police car? This one here? Yes. So they parked along here. Yes. Out from the curb again. All right. How many attendants in that ambulance? Two, I believe. Okay. Do you know about how far it is from the 5,000 block of Highway 66 to your house? The 5,000 block of 66? Mm-hmm. If you cut across the church parking lot? Yeah. In a direct line, in other words. Right. Is that your question? Yes. In a direct line, probably less than a half a mile. Less than half a mile. It wouldn't take you very long at that time of night to cover that much ground, would it? No. What, maybe a minute? 
probably a minute, two minutes, depending on your gait. Well, I'm talking about if you were in a car. I mean, if you were going 60 miles an hour, you could cover a half a mile in how long? Well, I don't have a calculator on me. I don't know. Half a minute? Very quick. And it might take a little longer if you're going 30, but police officers don't drive 30 when they're in a hurry, do they? No. Okay, did Darren ever go back in after he was escorted out? No, no one went back in the home, except for the officers and paramedics. Once Karen, Terry, and Darren were escorted out, Darren was asked to go over and sit on the end of the sidewalk in front of the Neal's house with Terry and Karen. No one went back in the home except for Karen whenever she got the dog. And that was between, like I said, maybe six or seven o'clock that morning. It was after sunrise. Okay. While you were standing out there, I guess other neighbors were gathering around, were they? After a period of time, not real soon. Did you see the Watts, the folks right here, talking to the police? Yes, I did. Okay. And did you see the police officers writing down what they were saying or appeared to be writing down, taking notes of what they were saying? It wasn't actually the Watts. It was actually Mrs. Watts that talked to the police officer. Mrs. Watts talked to the police officer? Yes. Okay. Now, as far as, is this your van? Yes, it is. And in addition to that, you've got a red Nissan? Correct. Pickup. Pickup truck. Yes. And you're telling us that to the best of your recollection that the Nissan was parked in here too that night. To the best of my recollection, that's where I always park. All right. Are you telling us that she parked it there that night? Or do you remember it because that's the way you always did things? No, that's where I parked that night. Okay. There was nothing there to prevent me from parking there that night. That's where I always park it. That's where I parked it that night. Okay. And Darren kept his car parked along here, didn't he? his pathfinder right at the end of the sidewalk or thereabouts. And he kind of did that to slow people down coming through the neighborhood. Wasn't that discussed among your neighbors? Um, speed bumps or something. And he would keep his car parked here because the kids were out running around and he didn't want people driving fast. It would make a good deterrent. I don't know whether that was ever discussed with myself or not. Not that I recall. Speed bumps were discussed at one point. The city will not use them. There was even some talk about Darren putting some out there himself, wasn't there? That I don't know. It was not to me. Okay. Your boys would go over and play with the Rutu children in their home. Yes. And you were comfortable with that, weren't you? Yes. Okay. I believe that is all. Thank you, Mr. Gorsuch. At which point the court then again asked the uh, prosecuting attorney who was originally asking the questions, Mr. Shook, if he had any additional questions. And Mr. Shook gets up and says, just a couple more questions, judge. Mr. Gorsuch, talking about speed bumps, did you yourself have some concerns about the street there and cars going by? Yes, quite often. And what was your concern? The concern is it's kind of a blind corner because of the way the corner is fairly sharp there. You have a long street that leads to the west and a long street that leads to the south. And people in one of those photographs there, you can see black marks that are very evident in the pavement there. It's not uncommon for people to squeal their tires when they round that corner. With my children, as well as the Routier children, it was always a concern of almost everybody in the neighborhood of that corner. The children playing. Children, when they play, they don't pay attention to streets or sidewalks. Okay. There were a lot of times when there were some near misses. Near misses with who? Children. Okay. What about the Routier children in general? Did a situation ever come out there where cars had to break for them? I'm sure they did. Yes. Okay, did you give specific instructions to your son not to go out there? Most definitely. My son catches the worst in most ends. 
whether he's involved with it or not. He always gets a lecture on whatever happened. Were you ever out there when these cars almost hit the Routier children? Not directly, no. Okay, you heard about that? Yes. Did you ever see the Routiers out there supervising their children? Supervising? Yes. No. Okay, now as far as this incident that occurred, nothing like this had ever happened in the neighborhood before, had it? I don't understand the question. Is this something just totally out of the ordinary as far as someone being or a murder like this occurring in your neighborhood? It's out of the ordinary for Roulette. Okay, period. Do you feel you have a pretty safe neighborhood there? I believe so, yes. And as far as describing who went in the Routier house or how long they were in there, you didn't have a stopwatch on any of these things, is that correct? No. After getting kind of adjusted to what happened and what was going on, of course, I mean, it's immediate shock. As I said, the time frames become very convoluted at that point. It then becomes very hard to keep track of time. There are some things, though, that you can't wipe from your mind. Okay. At which point, Mr. Toby Shook says, that's all the questions I have. And Mr. Mulder says, we have nothing further at this time. The court then says, all right, you may step down, sir. Thank you. And Mr. Toby Shook asks, uh, may this witness be excused? And the court says, may this witness be excused? Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir, subject to recall. And then the court says, all right, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we're going to adjourn now until nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Same instructions as always. Don't talk about the case among yourselves. Don't do any investigation. And after the court adjourns, uh, we do know that the next day will be the testimony of the first officer on the scene, Officer David Waddell. So that will be in the next episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcast service so that you're always on top of the newest episodes. And as a reminder, if you do want to become a supporter, uh, consider becoming a Patreon. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash beach house 34 and uh, minimum is three dollars a month so anyway thank you again i hope you enjoyed listening to this portion of the trial and we will pick up next time with the testimony of the first officer on the scene officer david waddell thank you